One, and we're live. You're tuning to Cosmic Children. I'm your host, Kevin. And today I have quite a number of guests in the studio with me. I have the people behind Singapore Community Radio. And they're staring at me. Like I'm... <laughs> they're so awkward. Okay, so... Okay, I, I'm looking at like the Ghost in the Shell t-shirt behind you. Just okay. mostly wondering how much it costs. I would believe it will cost upwards of $500. 500? Wait, posters or t-shirt? The t-shirt, the t-shirt. Well, both. Upwards of 500 How about both? Wait, yeah, how about the posters? Unless you just take it. We're, we're, not, we're not negotiating. I'm just very curious. <laughs> I, I, I would believe it's upwards of $500. I see. Yeah. I see. For the t-shirt or the poster. The itself. Yes. So before we yeah. begin, um, <laughs> could you guys please tell the audience what is Singapore Community Radio and who are you guys? Everyone, stop arrowing. Yeah, everyone. Okay. I, I, I cannot arrow for this one, even though, uh, you know, next to me is my big boss, but sure. Uh, Singapore Community Radio is not really a radio station per se, but it's 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 a platform that, that we are developing. And by the time you're listening now, it's probably been running for a few months. So it's a platform that originally started out as something to spotlight a lot of like the DJs in Singapore. Uh, it was started by Darren and Kurt. Okay. It was started by Darren and Kurt. I, I just wanted to like to, to, to double check in terms of my fact. I just wanted to fact check. <laughs> la. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like it was, it was started by Darren and Kurt who both of them are DJs as well. And uh, it was just kind of like a way of like bolstering the kind of DJ culture right here while taking some cues from like some of the worldwide kind of like platforms like NTS Radio, Worldwide FM and even like Soul Community Radio. Okay. So uh, this is kind of like an official like, like sibling kind of like deal. La. So... I came into Singapore Community Radio. Can you introduce yourself first? Oh, right. Yes. So Who is this mysterious fellow? Okay, Darryl sorry. Peters. My name is, is uh, uh, Daryl David. Okay. And, like I'm the managing editor at uh, Singapore Community Radio. Okay. So <laughs> I, I handle mainly like the... Okay, sorry. I, I just... Everybody's so nervous. <laughs> my name is Daniel Peters. Sorry. It's not, not Daryl David. <laughs> yeah. I might as well be. Do you yeah. have a preference for Daniel or Peter or both or Peter Daniel? So there's four choices right there. Which do you wow. prefer? DP. I can just go with my first name, man. Daniel. <laughs> yeah, Daniel. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's one of those deals where like people call me by another name instead of calling me my first name for some reason. It sounds terrible. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. There's okay. Singapore culture for you. Yep. But yeah, anyways, yeah. So back to Singapore, Singapore Community Radio. Like I came in because Darren, uh, now the sole head of uh, Singapore Community Radio, was looking at revamping like the platform and. Okay. Just kind of like tailoring it for like a very different kind of like year for Singapore where firstly the music scene is different from what it was when Singapore Community Radio first started out. Okay. And also just kind of like looking beyond the music scene because that's something that me and Darren have been very much entrenched in. And uh, it's never really good to, to kind of like stay within one lane. Like. It's always good to kind of like spread your wings, just kind of see what's out there because, you know, firstly, Singapore is a really small country and, uh, you know, creatives kind of spend and like they tend to, uh, I would say they, they, they tend to defy the, the, the lines that separate disciplines, mm. you know? So like, we feel like we should capture the kind of spirit and, you know, not just kind of like, uh, what's the word? Restrict ourselves. Okay. Yeah. To like one lane. So yeah. So like, this was the idea of like having to bridge these different like scenes and cultures in Singapore and, and just like crafting these di different narratives, especially in their words, because we've gotten like some of like our partners and collaborators from these different areas 
to to kind of create content of us lah, whether it's like podcasts or live streams. So right now, at the time you're capturing us, this is when we are firming up a lot of like the ideas we've had and we've already started recording with some of these people. So I think by now, by the time you're listening to this, you, some of the content's already produced. Mm. So yeah, like now now it's just kind of like that. Now it's the crunch time lah. Gotcha. Much. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, that's a you, perfect yeah. elevator pitch for you guys. That's why we arrowed Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so for Darren, could you speak? So um, Daniel just spoke a bit about what you guys are today. Could you speak about what it was uh, forming SGCR in the beginning? What was it like? Well, in the beginning, uh, SGCR was really kind of a platform to that we saw to kind of promote the local DJ culture. Okay. And in a lot of sense, kind of uh, imitating uh, or replicating uh, the success of like, you know, Soul Community Radio. Uh, what's the one in Berlin? Yeah, I mean, basically a lot of like this community radio kind yeah. of platforms around yeah. the world. But, uh, you know, they a lot of them kind of focus more on like dance music and all. And me and uh, Kurt, Yep. I mean, we coming from like a, a DJ culture, being like long, long, long DJs ourselves, yep. uh, and having the connections with all these guys. I mean, saw so that you know, it's just a, it was the perfect opportunity then. Uh, I think this was like in twenty seventeen. Gotcha. Yeah, and also it was also the year I think uh, we saw the demise of Lush as well. The radio station Singapore. Yes. Okay. Uh, so we kind of saw uh kind of a gap that needed to be filled. Yep. Uh, for like uh, I guess electronic music or more kind of a uh, niche music that is uh not so I guess widely appreciated. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, with regards to your personal history, could you speak a bit a bit about DJ culture at the beginning when you first started? Because that is something that how how did that transition from being a DJ to wanting to start this uh community radio and then this post transition back to where it is now with wanting to integrate different cultures? Why is there such a is it is it always this uh, clear cut? Well, I think having, I mean, like trying to, you know, focus on, uh, well, trying to integrate different kind of like uh, cultures or like arts and every, integrate everything in was always a dream, just that yeah. we never really had the capacity to do so. Yep. Uh, I mean, we had a few commitments that we, that we, took on that were bigger than we thought. Okay. Uh, so we didn't really have the capacity, but also, you know, because of this uh, pandemic that went on, it's also a time that uh, I kind of took to f try and like refocus mm -hmm. and restructure this whole thing to kind of try and like, uh, I guess, bring everybody together again okay. and try and, uh, you know, kind of uh, have a new way to look forward to. Interesting. Yeah. You... Yeah, and you you asked something about uh well I mean like DJing I think yeah. I've been DJing for about what twenty years now twenty yeah you don't look a day over twenty five but <laughs> sure okay so twenty years so I think early two thousands would that be a rough yeah uh, around ninety nine two thousand I probably yeah. started like yeah. DJing since then uh I mean I've been kind of involved in in some way or the other in the music industry in Singapore for uh, about that time, 20 plus years as well. Yep. Yeah. All right. And the last person, Huyen. Hi. So what is your role currently in uh, the community radio? Before I say that, I just realized I've never been in a room 
with more bald men than I am right now. Because there are literally three men <laughs> What is the significance of that? I don't know. I just thought it was really funny. <laughs> I see. Yeah, we're all used to it because, you know, NS lah. But yeah, we, we never yeah, really yeah. get like the other side. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And it's not a very common hairdo, so. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, um, I'm a producer at okay. Singapore Community Radio. So my background was actually in advertising. Yep. Um, Darren saved me from advertising. Okay, not really. But um, I left after about six years, went on to freelance in like a bunch of other places. And then Darren found me in COVID. And then he was like, are you ready for a full-time job? And I was like, yeah, sure. It sounds dramatic. Yep. Imagine I like know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, <laughs> well, I was uh, momentarily in advertising as well. I mean, that's where I met yeah. Kui. Yep. Yeah. When you're, you guys are talking about advertising, meaning, could you elaborate a little bit? Like, uh, doing ads in the advertising industry? Like, could you I streamline was, it a little bit more? I was a suit in an advertising agency. Okay. Yeah. So I was... I think in my lifetime, I was in like three or four agencies. Okay. Throughout, yeah. So Darren, I actually met in my first uh, full-time agency. So that okay. was funny. But that was already a few years down. Yeah. The I only came in a bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite funny. So in the beginning, were you juggling both uh, DJing and advertising or was that, DJ- what's the timeline like? Yeah. Well, DJing was always kind of like a, you know, a side hustle, something for a hobby, something I did for, you know, shits and giggles oh wonderful more than more than money to yep, be honest yep, yep. so it's like i always had kind of like full-time gigs either kind of in the music industry or uh yeah dealing with it or yep, like yep. in advertising yep. for the last few years at yep. least yeah i hear stories and urban legends about how insane uh the the clubbing scene used to be could you speak a little bit about that were you involved in any of the local clubs? Were you playing actively? Will you be breaking any oaths if you were to like reveal? Yeah, any NDAs <laughs> twenty years yeah. later. Well, I would say that uh, I I feel that it was w- a lot more vibrant back mm. in the early two thousands. Okay. Uh, I feel that uh, at that point of time, there were people that went out to clubs or events really for the music. Gotcha. More to be seen. Yep. I mean, it was kind of like pre, well, I, I think pre-mobile internet. Definitely. So I think it, there were definitely like a bit more kind of like restraint and control when people went out, you know, they, they really went out to kind of like uh, meet their friends yep. and, you know, spend time instead of, you know, being on their mobile phones, yep. taking yep. Instagrams and like, you know, trying to capture the moment yep. and yep. all that. Yeah, try. I think like people were kind of living in that moment. Were you part yeah. of the pager era or were you post-pager? I think I was in the pager era when I was in secondary school. Gotcha, so, gotcha. yeah, that time probably early mobile phones, Nokia phones mm, probably. Mm, mm. Yeah. So interesting. Um, You spoke about how it used to be vibrant. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that? Like, how is it when, when you look at it now, let's say 20 years later and you reflect upon it, what is the difference really? You have different kind of collectives uh, for different music yep. subgenres. Uh, so you had like the guys that did trance parties, and then they'll be doing the trance parties all around. And there was like drum and bass guys, which I mean I was part of. Uh, there were, you know, the house the house DJs that would be doing the well a few different house. Uh, house is basically the pop music of uh, kind of like dance music or electronic gotcha. music. House music, right? Yeah. Yep. So there were always a few groups of uh, collectives of those guys around. I mean, hip hop was always 
always been kind of like a big thing you know yep. they had that whole big thing like their own thing going as well yep. uh so you go out and there'll be different kind of like things happening in one night and oh, interesting. there's always like somewhere to go to yep uh and most of them being kind of like local djs as well uh i mean I think it still suffers. Back then, it's also kind of suffered from like, you know, the big DJ syndrome as well. But I think that is when a point, uh, there was probably only Zook. Yep, and yep. we all kind of like gather, like most of the DJs or like most of the music lovers will kind of gather in one place. Okay, let's go out and see this big DJ, mm. you know, and then play. And then, uh, yeah, just it was kind of a, a Zook's was like a social gathering kind of like place. I've heard of even, that. Yeah. I've heard of that. Um, when you say big DJ syndrome, is it like could you elaborate on that? Would would it mean that when when someone comes to town, it's like a big event that everybody goes to? Well, Zook had the budget uh, back then, so it was pretty much like every other week. Mm, so wow. you know, sometimes they had more unique uh, guys coming down. For example, like maybe I can't remember if James Lavelle played that. You know, is it Zook. is it comparable to like when before pre COVID, Maki would have like one big name DJ every week or so? Well, Zook used to have like one big name every yeah. other week. But when we're talking fact, big, it's like relative or so, right? Yeah. I I think dance music has changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, back then, what was kind of the EDM back then, I guess, would be kind of progressive house. Yeah. So yeah, I had like... Or like a, the Prodigy big beat stuff. Yeah, and yeah. kind of like that. Uh, So yeah, I think dance music has like changed a lot. There were kind of superstar DJs, but they were not like the superstar DJs that we kind of see on social yeah. media around. Oh, they, they, okay. would, they would, to a certain degree, be actually really good at, you know, either production or just like, you know, being really good the DJs instead of being very good marketeers, mm. you know. So there's a difference between a marketer, a marketer DJ and a DJ DJ? Is I, that what you I mean? wouldn't say like, because uh, I think being a DJ in this current era is yep. very different from being a DJ back then. Gotcha. Because uh, back then, all you needed probably to do was, uh, you know, be a really good DJ. Yep. Uh, maybe have good productions, you know, produce good music. And you probably have the opportunity to, you know, get somewhere. Yep. But nowadays, you know, apart from doing that you need to market yourselves really well you know mm. you need to maintain your social media like you need image that, part too you know the image part you know back then yes you know that kind of played a role but wasn't that a priority yeah I think slower back then in your opinion trends definitely took a while like a way a lot longer to, you know the trend cycle was a bit uh, mm. about and we probably had like a gap or so in terms of catching up to like America mm-hmm. and Europe or so, right? Well, we all, I mean, Singapore's always behind on trends. Yeah. But I guess now it's faster because we've got the internet as so well. We're more, yeah. we're more aware. Yeah, yeah. Well, back then we had the internet as well, just that it wasn't mm. mobile, you know? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I had to go back mm. and it's like on forums. I mean, back then I was kind of maintaining a few, uh, I think like back then, me and my friends, we had a drawing base forums. So okay, I, okay. I, I started out in a, uh, with friends doing uh, drum bass forums and all that and maintaining it and kind of like building communities. Yep. So um, I think one more question with regards to this. What, how would you classify drum and bass? Because if, that, that is not a term that I've heard before. I've heard techno, I've heard EDM, I've heard house even. And those are, how, how would you classify uh, what exactly is drum and bass music? Is it because of the percussions that you use? Is there a particular tempo? How would you uh, put things under this particular category? 
how would you describe? I would say it's the it's the tempo. It's quite it's quite bang on. So like in terms of the beat, so and like the production of like drum and bass. Yeah. Because when when you're talking about drum and bass, it it has nothing to do with like acoustic instruments. Gotcha. Yeah. So like it's all entirely based off like sampled like. Uh, so it's a misdirect. Uh, <laughs> I, not not really. I mean, like, because like, if if you're talking about different music cultures, the way that they they take a look at like instruments or like terms, right, it can be very different. So like, when you're talking about like drum and bass, and it came from like, from correct me if I'm wrong, but like, it came from the UK underground, right, drum and bass. Yep, it pretty yeah. much kind of like developed uh, exactly. out of. Uh, it was for many years a strictly UK thing. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And how did it get adopted to like a local context in Singapore? Well, music is always international. I mean, if there is a you know, there's a certain kind of music. Yep. I think it definitely there will be a number of fans uh, mm. in every country. Yep. Just whether it's enough to kind of like populate for a community. Was Kit the one who brought it in? I think there were many, there were many DJs. I mean, but Kit he's was one of the biggest proponents of drum mm. and bass right in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another, another uh, long time drum and bass DJ from the past would be Ramesh. Mm. Ramesh mm. is another one. I think there is an oral history article done by uh, uh, these two very good writers. I, I can't think of a better word, but very good is, is describes them. Um, one is Hitzir Junaini and one is the other one is Nishka Chandran. Okay. So uh, both of them, I think they chronicled like the rise of like drum and bass and like other underground dance styles in Singapore. Yep. I think it was under Thump, right? Vices dance music back uh, then, Mac, yeah. yeah, because it's no longer around. I think you can you can still find the article online if you use like web web archive lah. But like, yeah, I think if you want to learn about like how it actually kind of like caught on here, you can definitely it's it's online. I think that article was really well done, and you could hear it from like the people themselves also. Fantastic, yeah, yeah. So but just please. to I guess like answer your question, what is drum and bass? Okay, mm. let me read to you. Uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what was Wiki's uh, description of it? Something about just now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's characterized by fast break beats mm-hmm. and heavy bass and sub bass lines, sampled sources and synthesizers. Yeah. The music grew out of breakbeat hardcore. Oh, so breakbeat hardcore yep, was yep. something that came out in the I guess like eighties in UK uh, when they started doing illegal raves and squat parties and all that. Uh, also very punk and energy, mm. very DIY, mm. it came very from DIY. Like DIY levels, and like the music itself is very aggressive. Yeah, so drum and bass kind kind of hits like the midpoint. Yep, it is quite aggressive in like the way that the break beats are reproduced, but like a lot of the production has a lot of like soulful synths. Yeah, so it's a lot of like uh house music incorporated inside uh, the ambience. Yeah, well, to be honest, uh, drum and bass has so many sub or kind of splinters yeah. that is like if there is kind of a no contemporary music genre there will be a drum and bass version of it so if like you know jazz jazzy drum and bass yeah okay soulful okay. drum and bass yeah uh there's trancy there's drum and bass that sounds trancy yep. uh, and i'm pretty sure there are some country sounding ones but i mean these are kind <laughs> of like you know out of a uh, out of the character or like the you know the heads and minds yep, of yep. S- certain producers sometimes they're taking a piss sometimes they're serious about it mm. you know I mean yeah, again yeah. Like, you know all dance music and uh, most forms of music lead to black music as well what and is like, black music? as in like uh, music that was made by either African American mm. people or you know immigrants in the UK gotcha so yeah like like again like all these are all splinters but it all comes from like the same place in a way okay yeah when we talk about house and techno so it all comes from Ah, uh, Detroit, Chicago. Chicago. These are places with predominantly African American people, also. Yep. And they are the ones who were holding all these underground parties. 
And then white people came in and did something yep. else. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they made it bigger, but at the same time, they kind of took it away from them. Mm. So yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess right now, I, I think a lot of the stories of like uh, black DJs coming out to, in a way, to reclaim the music and, you know, to add their own uh, narratives to uh, like dance music, especially for like as a, a culture like dance music where you won't really find a lot of like narratives or so, because a lot of DJs just tend to like keep quiet. There aren't a lot of stories. Probably, okay. Probably okay. stories they don't want people to know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I mean, just 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 trying to add on to the fact that like, even though while there are a lot of like splintered subgenres, kind of leads back to like a, a very like a very common denominator over there. Yeah. Mm. So with the with the knowledge that uh, drum and bass start off in the UK as a subculture, uh, adopting it into like a more local context, were there any uh, particular uh, momentums or p- particular thought? towards the idea of perhaps localizing it and adopting it more for a more local context? Or was it more about uh, playing the type of sound that you hear on the radio and just uh, giving it to the masses? Hmm. I wouldn't say it would be a very radio-friendly thing even way back then. Okay. Um, I think there will... I actually, before DJing, I mean, I tried my hand uh, or I was quite more involved in production, trying yep. to make my own tracks. Yep. I don't think I, you know, ever tried to localize it or in any form. I uh, try and replicate, I guess, uh, you know, music that I heard, like drum and bass uh, or jungle music that I heard and really like and, you know, just trying to make newer sounds. I mean, for me, it was always a... Uh, a journey of like trying to make and discover new sounds. Gotcha. Yeah, more than trying to localize it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Like, like I, I think it's just very difficult to, to localize music or so because the way I guess our music culture was developed or, or rather like the way our music culture developed and then was kind of like held back for the longest time, especially during the 70s and 80s. What happened? It's always, huh? What happened? I, I mean, I won't, I won't go into it much, but like, you know, a lot of things happen, really. Are you yeah. talking about what, what, like culling or something? And, wow, actually, that's not a bad word to use it. But I, I mean, I, I guess it's something that you can find online the way that um, there was a lot of like government um, uh, suppression in terms of like uh, mm. original music in Singapore. Interesting. And even music culture. So like, we're talking about like nightclubs mm. because like, again, like if you're talking about the history of nightclubs in Singapore, it goes way beyond Zouk. It's just that Zouk was part of like the rebuilding of like that kind of culture. And it, the, 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 the ground, the ground that laid for it was dance music. Mm. Uh, but before that, it was a lot of rock music. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, if you want to, if you want to go way back, uh, we can just go down to the suppression of like men having, Long hair. Long hair. Yeah, which is in the mm. 70s or so. And there was already a suppression on culture itself. Yeah. It was basically a, a suppression of like youth culture, which yeah. at that time they just saw as hippies. Gotcha. Yeah. Because they kind of saw it as a very subversive yep. um, yeah. kind of culture that was anti-authoritarian, which they're not wrong. But you know, like the, the way that Singapore handled it at the time was a lot more ham-fisted. Yep. Yeah. So therefore, like the way it has developed in Singapore, it was, it was quite suppressed during the period. And then like once it came to like, I guess the mid to late 80s, yeah. I guess there was a bit more leeway or so. And and this is something that Huiz has been like actually, researching a lot. Yeah, actually, yeah. I just read out on it this morning. It was only until the 92, mm. um, 1992, where Singapore government decided they wanted to do a censorship review mm. um, in terms of how the Western imported culture can actually balance with our local culture. Because I think to, to Darren, Daniel's point, um, 
I think Daryl. they were sorry. <laughs> like they did a lot of this like censorship because they were very worried about what exactly was the Singapore identity that yep. they were building. So they tried to take back a lot of that control. And it was only in 1992 that they decided they had to let in a, a bit of this Western culture. So so if you look back in that era, there was actually a lot of those like psychedelic hippie culture yeah. that didn't translate to Singapore, whether it's in music or even in design itself. Yep. So it was only after that you start seeing a bit of the punk culture coming in, a bit more of the rock and roll culture coming in. So so that's a very interesting part of Singapore's history that yep. if you speak to anyone of that era, I think they will tell you that's begrudgingly, that's, yeah, that was probably the era that missed out on quite when a bit. When you say yeah, and you point to both of them, so. <laughs> no, Darren, Darren, I'm not yeah, okay. Darren. I'm probably like. I'm closer in age to who he's. Yeah, she's younger I, than me, so. I'm probably in the second wave of yeah, that. Yeah, Come yeah, on, yeah. I'm like, I'm born in the 80s. <laughs> Sorry, not you. The, you're yeah. pointing behind you. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Be, so beyond me. Hui mentioned 92. And from 92 to now, it's about 28 years. It's actually very, very recent. So I think my question to everybody is that, mm. is it important to, let's say, to 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 know the history, let's say, especially in Singapore, London, you, it's important to know the history of the origin of the thing. Mm. But for a more local context, is it important to know that there was a dip or decline in, I guess, local... Uh, local culture and that we had to build it up again from the night. Is it important yes. to, to, to partake? Yeah. I think so. Because, um, so, so on the side, I'm doing this project documenting Singapore's creative history, right? So it was very apparent when I was doing my research that there was a resurgence in, resurgence in energy in the early 90s to 2000. And I think it was very largely because they were deprived, loosely speaking, right? Deprived of that, that, culture input from that era so they knew that they had to fight even harder to to get that personal yeah. expression right out yeah. and to really make it grow in Singapore as a as a as a community itself yep. yeah so I do think it's quite important to know why there were certain picks and troughs in Singapore's creative culture or heritage or music history or whatever it is because yep. then you sort of understand why certain trends stuck certain trends didn't stick and yeah yeah, I think in, in art as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in design and art, I think during that, that period of time, the uh, 90s, during the kind of mid and early 90s, it was yeah. probably you would find kind of yeah. like the most vibrant as well because it, it just kind of, uh, we're kind of thrown into it. There yeah. were like a whole bunch of like, you know, performance artists. I think they were widely covered by new paper mm -hmm. at that time. Okay. You know, yeah. doing very controversial uh pubic hair, cutting works, and etc. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What about Daniel? Sorry, I might need to repeat the question. Just, just to make <laughs> sure that I get the right answer, I guess. Is it important to know the history of uh, how, what what happened locally to partake? Like in 2020, is it important right. to know it? Uh, I guess to answer directly, yes. Uh, it is important only because of the way that we tend to view Singaporean history has always been fairly whitewashed or so. Okay. And uh, it's always focused on Singapore's progress, but never really focused on the way that we've been held back as well. Mm. And not, not, not so much about like the natural factors of it, but rather the factors, the man-made factors are in which that the way Singapore has been governed or so. Uh, so I, I think, I think just adding on to like what Huiz was talking about in 992, this was also a year I might be wrong with the date, but just correct me. But I believe Henry Rollins came to Singapore. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, the, the legendary Black Flag frontman, in a way, one of the last few people you think will come to Singapore is a pretty trans transgressive figure in punk. But he came to Singapore with his band. He played at the community center. Apparently, like the sound-wise, was terrible. It's coming out the PA system. That, that kind of show. Very, very DIY, very punk, you yeah. know. And like, uh, also, 
this was a very new thing for Singapore because people were at, at least the way the new paper branded it was slam dancing. Mm. Wait, what? what? So dancing. what we know now is moshing or just yeah. as people jumping around and pushing yeah. each other. They called it slam dancing at the time. Gotcha. Like, you know, it was... They didn't know how to describe it? Um, It was rather like, it was just a, a term for its time. Yeah. 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 But like now we, we describe it differently and like it was it was such a new phenomenon for Singapore that it made the front page of like the new paper. Gotcha. And yeah. like that's such a weird thing to think about. Like in a yeah. way, Henry Rollins is in the front of page of like the new paper. Like, does the new paper still exist? I mean like- I mean it does. Like, yeah. Well, the new paper of his day was like basically the Stompler and the Stomp, <laughs> oh. the Stomp, the Stomp still exists. Um, I don't know, man. I think I it does. I wouldn't care enough to know. Yeah. But, uh, you see, that, that that's how, that's how uh, depleted of a uh, normal media I am, yeah. to be honest. And, and I think <laughs> like the way that they, they framed it was to kind of play on like, you know, uh, I guess conservative fears in Singapore yeah. that this is like, again, it's, it's kind of like a cycle again, like this is like the the decline of like, you know, moral values. You know, just, yep. just thinking of yep. like the big picture kind of like hysteria, right? Yep. Uh, so again, like I, I think that was when the they, they really had band. to like reevaluate everything, yeah. uh, and which is why like in the preceding year, in like the following years, uh, there were a lot of other punk shows that happened, and not even just limited to punk. A lot of like rock shows where I believe slam dancing was limited or so, and like they weren't allowed to like jump around. Like Actually, yeah, uh, in 1993, they banned moshing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So apparently, what I heard is, um, when show organizers organize a show, they have to put it on deposit, and mm. if the police comes and check and they realize someone is moshing at your show, yeah. you your deposit gets confiscated. Oh, right. And that was actually the period when a lot of the show organizers decided they wanted to be careful, so they didn't put out as many shows, and it kind of killed local music a it little did. bit. And, yeah. and not just local music, man. I think like if you're talking about like international bands yeah. like Metallica, for example, they came in 993 yeah. and uh, apparently the police presence, like I wasn't there, uh, but the police presence was really heavy at the show mm. and and they were playing on and especially like the local government were playing on fears that like it's going to be rioters because like I believe a few days before that they played Jakarta and there were like small riots okay. that are happening over there like after the show so you know again like you know super tense or so and like therefore it was quite restricted same thing with Fugazi or Punk Band or so when they played at the community centres or so it was very restricted no one was allowed to like jump or mosh mm. yep. and like even the band themselves where they come from a culture where this is normal they understood that immediately and they had to tell audience like please don't do that mm. so like that's just mm. weird to think about like right? even like you know westerners who come to singapore and it's 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 like the long hair band where like certain bands they either just walked away if they weren't allowed in the country or like they had to just come in play and get out mm. yeah it's just all, the way of respecting like the, the the local the local like values here mm. so like values inverted commas but yeah like it's it it definitely restricted or at least killed the vibe like these Mm. To use a colloquial term here. With with <laughs> yeah. the benefit of hindsight and maturity, mm-hmm. why do you think there was such an aversion to outside cultures coming in? I think it's 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 just a pattern of like the the idea of like uh Western influence or like just an outside influence okay. denigrating like our our traditional Asian society. Okay. When in fact you know, we were built upon like British values here. <laughs> so like exactly. I, I feel like such a misnomer. So it's a, it's a, it's it's something that you can apply to not just in like popular culture and like you know export like you know music and stuff like that, but like even just looking at the way that gay people are treated here in Singapore, so mm. because they, they see that as you know the decline of like you know traditional values or so. Yep. Yeah. So I, it's I'm, it's it's just playing on that kind of fear just to maintain that what what they tend to call the social, social. fabric. Yeah, but like you know we we all know that like our society isn't as fragile as they think it is la. Mm-hmm. and a lot of people here are more open to ideas than than, than they think they are mm-hmm. and I feel that when you give people that chance to be more open to ideas 
you do allow people the space to think for yep. themselves. Yep. Yeah. Do you do you think the internet was the game changer with regards to that, or did did something happen along the way that I kind of opened the floodgates? Because with regards to let's say soft censorship, all these things sounds like soft censorship. They mm. they don't outright say you can't do it, but they they hamper and they 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 make it difficult. So with regards mm. to the internet, I mean things are the, the over the last twenty years the game is different because you yeah. it it is difficult to unless you build a gigantic firewall around the the the, the service. It is. Near nigh impossible these yeah. days to to say hey you can't go to this website. I mean that is a ridiculous thought to think of in twenty twenty, but it sounds like what it was back then in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we didn't have VPNs in in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I think like uh, there was a I guess that was the government's largest oversight if mm. they wanted to keep people uh kind of in check. Yep. Uh, yep. So that the internet really opened up a really big floodgate. You know, for I guess a uh, more widespread, uh, I guess uh, how we call it, open, open-mindedness yeah, in people, yeah, yeah. easy access to uh, I guess knowledge and world, uh, world going ons, because uh, before that we're kind of limited to you know the you know the presses or you know what's on the news, what even is on radio, yes, on radio. Yeah. So we're really controlled back then. Uh, the internet kind of like really opened a. I think a new whole new world. I mean, I was one. I guess I would be one of the, f- you know, earlier people that adopted uh. adopted internet like RSC and then kind of like you know chat rooms and then I don't know looking at weird geo cities and angel fire <laughs> websites. Oh wow, the terribly designed ones. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that was the I guess like the beginnings that of was like the norm internet. Back then, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean you don't didn't really have like search engines. Yep. Uh, you just basically, you know, find out about a site and then you key in and then you share with all your friends and this is the site they go to. Like, I guess like a really popular site back then was like, you know, Dead babies, dead rotten.com. Babies. Rotten.com, yeah. yes, rotten.com. So basically, rotten.com it's, it's a was, gore. Yeah, <laughs> it was a repository of like extremely disturbing images. And it's the kind of stuff that like you dare your friend to go to the website and to see, but like you yourself won't like go to the website. Could you define disturbing? We might have different definitions. Uh, uh, okay, so like I remember that one of the most popular things that like my friends would tell me to go on Rotten.com to check were the suicide pictures of Kurt Cobain. Okay. Yeah. So okay. like yeah. I, I remember that, that those pictures exist and like when I actually did get to see, they were not close up, they were not close up pics. In mm. fact, they were quite far away because yep. they were paparazzi photos. Uh, but yeah, they, they just tend to, to capture a lot of like real life accidents, deformities. Uh, yeah, accident. Yeah. yeah, I mean like- you know, Accidents her, especially, right? Heads <sighs> burst open, yeah. side of the roads, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that. It was just a whole site of like gore. Any, this, this any kind of gore. This where like, it wasn't even limited to the internet. I believe there was a VHS series called Faces of Death. Yeah. Wait, Yeah, so okay. like this was a, a series of like videotapes that were released in the 90s where it's the same thing but just think of it as a video version. So like a lot of like snuff footage. Gotcha. And like, I've never, I've never dared to see any of these. I, I oh, think, yeah. I think just adding the, 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 the disturbing content, but also adding like the VHS green just makes it look even more cursed. Oh, yeah, this, this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The face yeah. of death was definitely pre-internet. For sure. for sure. But it, it, it kind of built the foundations into like the kind of like yeah. interests that would develop on the internet, the more yeah. fringe interests or so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I think, fun. yeah, beginnings of the internet were really, really fringe. It's like a wild west. Like, yeah, Whatever you 
you can sure, find uh, you just and, go and there. They didn't have like internet regulations then or so. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, codes of conduct and there were there was like non-existent yeah. back then. Uh I think there was uh you know a lot of like sites like go sites, you yep. know, then there were like dead baby jokes. Uh, mm. yeah. What else? What else was there? <laughs> Yeah, it was just a strange, strange a place, man. <laughs> walking up memory lane for you. You can buy the the complete box set. Of Faces of Death. How much? Yeah. I, I'm not going to buy it. But 200 USD. Oh, no. Over so these are like tapes. Uh. These yeah, are tapes. VHS like, tapes. Again, like the origins are quite unclear of like where all this footage comes yeah. from. Yeah. Yep. So like, you know, it, it kind of adds to the mystique la, during that period. So yeah. you don't know where it comes from. Yeah. yeah. And then whereas now, on the other hand, you have like skating videos with like jackass and shit like that. Oh, yeah. yeah Skate videos. Yeah, yeah. Is there any merits to, just tangentially off topic, is there any merits to like a form of regulation? Because if an adult, an adult coming across something like what you said with regards to the suicide of Kurt Cobain, like that particular image, I think it burns into the minds of a young teenager more than an adult. Yeah, and that will sure. be able to, to, to make sense of it. But I can imagine that there could be some uh, positives into like a self-regulation because you wouldn't want to expose someone who isn't, uh, that mature in his thinking for sure, for to sure. do something yeah. like that because those are pretty extremes yeah. and I guess with regards to the internet I think the allure and the just the bolstering and the challenging and the mystique of it yeah. really adds to that fuel to make someone want to search it out yeah I think also like yeah the, the way that uh, a teenager or even a child would perceive suicide is very different from an adult and especially if we're talking about adults mm. in this era yep. because of like mental health awareness yep. and the, the, the fact that we don't see suicide as a how do I describe it? As an abnormality in a sense, where it's becoming accepted that this is a real mental health issue mm-hmm. and should be treated as such. Uh, so like, so a curiosity like suicide photos, um, it would not, um, it will not gather the same intention and as well, like the way that we would, the way that we would digest it would be very different. Mm. Whereas that time it was just meant for shock and awe. Mm. Now it's a lot different already. Yep. Yeah. And if anything, we would try to prevent the spread of it. If, yeah. if, if you're active on like Twitter, for example, if there are such pictures going around, there would be a brigade of- To flag it immediately. To mm. flag it immediately and to warn other people not to share it. Mm. And I believe that's a very good practice. Trigger so. warnings. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. It's, 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 it's not just about being a teenager and like being exposed to it and, and that kind of like fucking up your head, but also just- the the mental toll that it takes on you just to see something like that where it really it it, it really is disturbing lah. Mm. You know, it's and, and also as an adult you're more aware of like why someone would end up doing that. Yep. Uh all these factors all all come into play, you know, the yep. way that our imaginations are run as well. Yep. Yep. In, in as teenagers as children or during that period at the time it's just it's just gross. Yeah, you know, it's just gross. Yeah, I think, I yeah. think shock, shock value really hits the nail on the head right there. Yeah. 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 So yeah. in a way, we've matured uh, and like, you know, the way that we perceive such materials also is very different. Yeah, the internet matured. For sure. Yeah, which <laughs> yeah. is why like I feel if if you want teenagers and children to use the internet, they should, but have the proper education to do that yeah. and, and with the proper tools and navigations, not censorship, but you know, to be informed and to know what's really out there. Yeah. Would you able to know if that is actively taught in schools or in education or is it something like the parent would have to tell the kid to be honest I have no idea what goes on in like uh, well mainstream Singapore education nowadays I think they only teach like internet security because yep. there's a safety so like internet like virus days, and right? stuff like that is like don't get like bullied be nice uh, to people yeah. uh, etiquette etiquette yeah but I don't think they actually teach you on how to properly consume um, mm. media or like to to yeah, to to avoid certain things or whatever. It's like they don't talk about sex education, so I don't think they talk about yeah. And even when we education. do sex, when we do have sex education, it's just that yeah. we don't have sex. Yeah. No, 
no, don't. So it's gonna <laughs> bite us. It, 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 it is gonna bite us culturally in, in a decade's time. Like. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. We, we are, like you know, in some ways, you know, we're talking about how internet now we're catching up faster. But in some ways, we're still taking like decades to catch up, man. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, in a way, like recent example, right? Like when BLM and everything happened, and a lot of Singaporeans were concerned about it, and then elections happened, and then some ministers came out to say we shouldn't be looking at this Western social trends blindly yep. and importing it to Singapore. But I feel like that was just a very authoritarian way of telling people that's wrong, yeah. which even though it's not, and, and they should actually be reflecting on why they're not educating on people, educating mm -hmm. people to be a bit more discerning, you know, in terms of what they, they, they read and consume online and what they want to bring back. So I, I just think that is something that we've overlooked quite a bit. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you know, like the, the way that the, they were always taught about external influences and yeah. Western values creeping into our society. What we've seen from like BLM in Singapore is solidarity. Yeah. And it's mm. kind of like a basic fundamental human value that should be taught, but it's not being taught enough. Yeah. So that's something that we are all practicing as well because we are getting informed about what's going on in the world. Like right now in August is what's going on in Belarus or so. Yep. Yeah. And like, again, it's, it's all about just being aware and also helping whenever you can. I mean, like, there's even in Singapore, and in something local, like, you know, mutual aid, at least you're being aware of what's mm. going on in Singapore. Mm. It, the the idea, the idea of like, you know, people saying about like, oh, why aren't you being more active in like local stuff when you're talking about BLM? That's just what about ism lah, you know? Mm. They're just trying to deflect from the, the issue right there. Yeah. How you guys imagine culture evolving? So we talked about how it was in the beginning. And we talked a little bit how it was today. How do you imagine it evolving to, let's say, within the next five years? Why I ask this question is because it's interesting to notice, although it's interesting to, to think about the fact that all this happened within our lifetime. Mm -hmm. From the slow drip of information back then, mm -hmm. where you only have uh, a select number of sources, magazines, people bringing back magazines from the radio even. For now, like everybody can turn onto their phones and get a saturation of content from places that you might not even go to. You just get the the the, the constant feed of, of information. And mm -hmm. culture is a bit, it's not as niche anymore. Sure, there are still pockets, definitely. But there is an increasing need to to put it online as well, mm -hmm. to to display some um some aspect of it. So I'm just curious to know everybody's thoughts on how do you imagine culture evolving? over the next five, 10, or even like 20 years. Yeah. Because it's not going to be, because the old paradigm of how, oh, something's very interesting. I don't think that really exists anymore. Because mm. everything is in the light. Everybody knows everything. Like, yeah, I'm just curious. Well, one of the reasons, uh, I mean, uh, I guess uh, we're bringing SGCR or Singapore Community Radio in this new direction as well to kind of like integrate uh, well music, arts, culture, uh, arts in all forms is, uh, I mean, I've noticed over the, well, the few years or like this decade that yes, information is easy to be accessed, but we are constantly being filtered, funneled, mm. and kind of like fed information that what algorithms think that we like and we are focused on and so much so that it creates uh you know like uh, segregations in mm. like interests yep. and you know people that are interested in certain things and you know you, you are interested in music all you you see in your feed is yep. like music yep. things yep. you're in interested in visual arts that's all you see you know you're interested in graffiti that's all you see and 
what I feel that uh, is important for for arts and culture is actually cross pollination. Okay. And you know, having a kind of even like a community center or a common place where everybody is kind of like uh, you know, fed all kinds of information and you know, having like communities kind of like having uh, you know, discourses about you know, things that are going on within like different kind of cultures and just allowing it to kind of like, uh, you know, kind of fester and kind of like, you know, breed its own, mutate yep, on its yep, own. Yep. Yeah. What about the rest of you guys? I mean, f- for me personally, I think on a grander level, I think culture will only become a bit more polarizing. Okay. Because social media is essentially a self-curation of what you want to see and algorithm, right? And values that you want to share. So uh, that will go both ways, right? Either it just becomes really divi- divisive, divisive, divisive. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Or, you got or it. yeah, right? <laughs> either one. Or it can lead to a bit more empathy if we learn how to have more dialogue about our different opposing point of views and having that conversation in a more constructive way, which I think to Darren's point is why we wanted to do this because uh, we just felt like it was time in Singapore where different people get to have conversations with different people and you weren't just shoehorned into your industry or your interest or whatever, but rather you feel like there is a safe space for you to discuss why you don't like visual arts or why you don't like graffiti or why you don't like certain things, but you gravitate towards other things. So... I do think it's in a time where we need to be a bit more compassionate to each other's differing point of views and to allow that safer space for people to have differing point of views. Yeah, so that's my personal opinion about it. Yeah. I'll try to add on to that. <laughs> but I, I, I think one important development of like culture in general, like from let's say we're talking about the early 90s to now, is that it has been co-opted by corporations and the mm. way it has been presented to like a wider public, while it has been accepted, um uh, it has also been splintered you know like you you have you have artists who are willing to i i wouldn't say sell out sell out is a very aged phrase but at the same time they are the motivations when it comes to you know creating art or the, mm. the the motivations of like pursuing their 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 preferred medium or so a lot of it is really it really has to do with like the dollars and cents of it and then there are those who are really doing it because of like any kind of purpose really like like it's it's not like it's it's never really a binary of whether if it's selling out or doing it for the passion like that's 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 very antiquated lah but but yeah like i i think just like with what we want to do here is that firstly telling the stories of like these different cultures in singapore and also and also making sure that like we are aware or educated of like what's going on there the other side of singapore yeah. Like West Side. No, no West Side. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, like unless, what, unless what do you they, mean by that? Con- yeah. Unless they're congregating directly in Woodlands, that is another thing. But okay, like, yes. What, what I meant is like yeah. in, in terms of like the different scenes and industries in Singapore, I, I guess like it's always good to have a little bit of education or like at least uh, at least being aware of, you know, the activities that are going on in Singapore. Because even though if you're not actively participating, you know, I feel that it, it makes Singapore feel more vibrant when you know that like there's something going on beyond your little world that in like within Singapore. So mm. and I feel that exposure is very important. Also because tribalism is a very, mm-hmm. very toxic thing. And also some, something that's very easy to 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 be developed. Mm. Uh and also again like like just going back to the earlier point about culture being co-opted or so by by in a way by capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um a lot of creatives are just struggling in Singapore. Mm. Okay. And uh 
I think what really helps is to always build um, unique, diverse platforms that at least if we are not able to, if if we are not able to directly monetarily support to make sure that like they're always given platform and exposure so that like that reverberation can go on within and beyond Singapore. I, I that sounds vague, but like yeah, I think I did. That's kind of like the motivation of us of like one thing of like making use of social media, but for something we feel is worthwhile. Mm. Yeah. When, when 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 you mentioned that creatives are struggling, do you mean in the financial sense, or is that not a lot of people, uh, support these uh creatives because they're so unknown? They are a bit more reserved. Could you just elaborate a bit? On I that? guess I guess unknown unknown would be one thing you know i guess there are some creatives and there are some artists who are not very good at self-promotion i think there's something that he touched on also about how like djs they are dj djs and like they are brand djs you know those who who are able to brand themselves those who are Mm. able to market themselves yep and like but i i think just just kind of like building on to that point uh our our way of 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 like conducting uh, sgcr isn't 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 the the simple idea of exposure Mm. Of, but instead of trying to build these narratives of like painting a bigger picture of what Singapore culture really is. Yep. Yeah. And and just like having show, showing like the microcosm of like these different scenes and cultures, but also showing that like there is a bigger there is a bigger thing that's going on out there that like all these different parts are, are a part of. Yeah. yeah. So I think um I have a question for everybody here. Um I believe you all grew up in Singapore, right? Yes, yes, around the table. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I think in 2020 or even 2020, uh, 2019, I think the word, the word passion has, I mean, the government has really been pushing it. It's the government's favorite word to classify, <laughs> I think, all things creative under the word passion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very curious to know how was everybody's upbringing growing up with regards to the arts? How Because we saw about local culture and what what is everybody's like uh, intersection with the different types of culture? Yeah, could you just share? I guess, I guess to kind of kick it off, I think we can all agree that all three of us are not exactly the brightest students in school, <laughs> yeah. or at least like the most like like prudent students. No, I couldn't tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do, you, do you do you define bright by like grades wise or grades wise and participation and just overall <laughs> being enthusiastic about school? So stand outside on a. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I, I think Darren can tell you, can tell you stories about his time in secondary school, but okay. like yeah, for for all of us, I I, I at least for me, um what I lacked in my education or what I lacked in my interest or at least like my enthusiasm in education, I made up for in enthusiasm in everything else that I consumed, which is mostly pop culture. Lah. Okay. Um, I, I grew up during the time where the internet was slowly becoming a norm. Okay. And uh, it was also my, in a way, a gateway for me, even though I spend most of my time in Neopets. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they can teach you really good business skills. I Sorry? Love no, it's true. Yeah, and, and like even like like um even even uh managing guilds is like a good skill set also that you can develop as Definitely. Well. And I learned HTML and a little bit of graphic design by doing like Neopets or so. Mm. That was cool. So but but also yeah, I, I think like it's just for me a lot of skills that I even apply now is something that I learned on my own free time growing up. Outside the classroom. Outside the classroom. And and, and the fact is that I was never I was never good with my grades. And um I I did sp- I, I, I at least I would say that time spent outside outside of school was worthwhile. Uh from my consumption of like, you know, movies and music and TV and just like reading up and just devouring books as much as I can. Yep. Uh I guess it has benefited me now. But it's you're also in a country where like you know education is highly priced, so you're always second guessing yourself. Interesting. Whether or, not, whether or not what you've done of like what you achieve is even worth it, because like in the end, it's not going to get you like a 
5k a five five figure kind of job like a cushy like. job yeah and, okay. and, and and no matter what like that is the that is the that is the ultimate goal for for like the common singaporean and in a way that's the dream for a lot of singaporeans mm. and you know the the way that the the fact that not all of us are going to achieve that and also under capitalism like not many of us are going to gotcha but yeah i i i i might detour a bit lah but yeah <laughs> <laughs> what about darren and fuya uh well i think uh i guess i speak from being very uh, anti authoritarian gotcha yeah. not the best uh, student in secondary school or structured education okay i was terrible at it uh even though my grades were not that terrible at first but like i did not i wasn't as bad as uh, some of my peers that yep. went to school every day i believe yep yep <laughs> yeah uh, well surprisingly <laughs> enough i went to art school yeah painting was my major mm. even though i didn't really finish that but uh, i think i spent a big part of my i guess like teenage years immersed in music okay uh i guess uh, it's punk culture okay uh you know yeah being involved uh, in some way or the other being either audience member or you know helping out at shows and all that uh punk shows and all yep. that uh making friends over there i think it's a it's a worthwhile uh i guess youth education street okay, education okay okay yeah darren put the d in diy no oh, wow <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a huge yeah i think i think this like entire diy uh culture is something that has kind of like uh i guess followed me around mm. uh has it served you well well just you know singaporeans have a you know adversity to risk mm. and you know the being scared to do stuff yep, because yep. they know or they're worried they're not gonna do it well yep. i think diy culture teaches you to just like fuck it mm. do it yep yep and yeah let's just see how the fuck it goes it's, it's the perfect antithesis to what the the local culture the local paradigm is look. yeah yeah so i mean a lot of times it's just uh just like fuck it let's mm-hmm. just do it mm-hmm. and figure it out we'll figure out along the way uh we'll polish it as we go along uh we will yeah, we will make it look nice and perfect. <laughs> and I know what we're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you describe SGCR as, as like that, a bit of a, a jump first thing later? Well, we do already have kind of like a base platform, mm. but uh, I mean, I am in the, well, right now we are in the process of actually tearing that all down mm. oh, fascinating. And, rebuilding well, and rebuilding it. Uh-huh. Uh, and I guess some ethos of this DIY is like coming back in I think on our own we have been doing some podcasts and it's to be honest very DIY (laughs) (laughs) very DIY we don't really have any structure and just kind of like hit record and then you know it just goes up the next day you basically hear the two of us talk about god knows what (laughs) 40 minutes yep yep yeah so yeah I mean that's that's how I kind of like view uh you know doing stuff gotcha in singapore there's like a guiding philosophy la. yeah uh well i mean i kind of brought that together with like some friends and uh, we we kind of like went kind of that route for you know drum and bass in singapore even though there were a few kind of like bigger players then we kind of just like did our own diy thing yep coming from like punk culture and then we switched up or like kind of like i guess 
matured a little kind mm. of like just went into electronic music and drum bass and then like we set up kind of like bass and then we kind of grew from there and then you know slowly kind of just integrating into the rest of uh rest of like i guess the music infrastructure yep. with what little there is in singapore mm. i'm just very curious was it very small back then what i mean by that is well, um, was there very like clear segregation? Like, let's say the drum and bass people do not integrate or do not converse with the hip hop hits or the metal hits, or was it more so small that everybody kind of knows everybody? Uh, Singapore is a place that is a uh, kind of uh, small, okay. so everybody that kind of does music kind of uh, it kind of like they cross over at some point. Either they were from the. I mean, they're talking about like the electronic music scene. Yep. Uh, they, at some point, you know, they were in like bands growing up, indie bands or like, you know, rock bands or hardcore punk bands. Uh, then they kind of like, you know, grew a bit older and then tastes kind of changed and oh. then moved on to other things. And then like, yeah, if you kind of like did music in Singapore or even nowadays, actually, it will kind of, uh, you'll kind of like cross, you kind of cross paths. Yeah. Interesting. What about Huyen? Sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> to, I guess growing up, uh, have what what were your personal uh, interactions with any form of culture in Singapore growing up? Mm. Actually, we're very similar because we were we weren't very active in school like all of us. So I actually spent a lot of my time outside, like consuming um, media and culture on my own. So okay. books, music. Strangely, none of my schoolmates had the same music taste as me. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I made friends with my friends outside. Um, but I would say that actually growing up, I was quite a passive consumer. What do you mean by that? Music. So I never actually went to a lot of gigs when I was younger mm. or went to see a lot of shows. So I was just like really consuming what I could on my own. Um, and I think that was why when, as I grew up and matured and had more money on hand, I realized that Singapore's culture or like community can be a bit insular. Insular. If you're not in the scene, if you haven't been there from the start, um, you might be you might find it a little difficult to get in or you might find it a little difficult to like know where to go I feel yeah it's kind of like a boys club yeah in a, a way. Bit. yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yes that boys club mentality to be yeah. honest I think that's something that's not really like confronted as much as it should yeah just because we've, we've been so used to it as being like a boys club mm. that like yeah I, and, and I think we're, we're in a we're, we're in an era where like you know more women are, are speaking mm. out or so at least or in terms of like having their own lane or so mm. and making sure that it isn't like just a boys club or so lah. Mm. yeah mm, interesting yeah essentially that mm. you guys mentioned about Lush mm. so I actually have no idea what that is I think it's a radio station mm. <laughs> could could someone elaborate as to what Lush is and what is the importance because you, you also said about the demise I would assume that there is a bit of a significance to the station so, so please speak about what Lush is and what was the cultural significance to this particular radio station? I'm going to speak as someone who is a listener and also as like a, a friend of like many of the people who ran Lush. Darren is someone who is actively involved. So he's going to provide a very, very different perspective. But I think the significance of like Lush for a lot of us is that this was a part of an establishment of like uh, entertainment. At least we're talking about mainstream entertainment, which is radio. Because mm. radio is something that is actively regulated. So it's not something that anyone can just put up. Okay. Not like a podcast. Yep. <laughs> I mean, like this yep. basically what we're doing. Yep. Podcast is in a way like a new gen radio. Mm. But um this I, I I mean like to see Lush and its significance of being within like this media media cop system was quite big for us because firstly they always championed a lot of the Singaporean musicians and a lot of visual artists or so. 
So you'll always there will always be air time for them. That was guaranteed, and there'll always be air time for Singaporean music. Mm. And that that's to to me that is just like that's a fundamental that should be a thing that should be a fixturity in Singapore as it is in many other countries. Yeah. But for Lush, the way that Lush was, was presented, it felt like a privilege, lah. So mm. um. Secondly, like just the DJs that were on Lush, you know, were on a class of its own, lah. You had people like Elias. You had um, you had Nick Shields, and Vanessa, Vanessa, v- Vanessa was also a producer, right? Yes. Yeah. And then we had like uh, Ross, mm. then uh, Chris Ho. Chris can't, Ho, so. can't forget Chris Ho. Yeah, Chris Ho basically laid the foundations of like a station like Lush from his days in Radio Fusion, and like his his form of transgression in Singapore is what has. Informed a lot of people in Singapore and the way that they've developed alternative culture. Was so. it the taste that they brought, or the personal style that all these people brought brought into the station that really formed the DNA of it? Was Do it something like so? that? Uh, they had their own personalities for mm. sure, but uh, yeah. I think like Chris Ho, on the whole, the in itself, he I would rec- I would say for lack of lack of words or describing mm. uh, things, it would be very similar to John Pugh of yeah. Singapore. Uh, I mean, I, are you uh, okay? So <laughs> <laughs> the first time I seen someone react to that, John Peel, but John Peel is like a patron saint of like alternative music, just in general. Uh, he was a, I, I believe he was in BBC. I might have been wrong, but he was a DJ um, in the UK. He's passed away now. He's 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 passed on for like more than a decade already. Gotcha. But for like the period that he served as a DJ, he was the guy that you'll go to for alternative music. And this is during a period where the radio really was an important source for like new music. It's not something. It's not something that you just look up online because back then you only had magazines, you had record mm. stores, and radio was one of them. And he was the guy who brought the kind of sounds that you would not find on mainstream radio to the fore, you know. And he would champion all sorts of music. He would champion drum and bass. He would champion grindcore. It's all you know, different, just, right? It's yeah. all these different extremes, yeah. all yeah. alternatives. And I, I mean, like Chris Hall very similar to that as mm. well. He had uh, diverse tastes uh, of music. Yeah. And actually, I mean, coming back to Lush, uh, I think the music programming beyond just like, uh, you know, championing local music, they also champion a lot of like alternative uh, electronic music, a lot of like alternative music that was not heard of any other, you know, the rest of the radio stations in Singapore, which is like, you know, it's like cut and copy. You turn from one dial to the next dial. It's yep. like, oh, same song, same song. Oh, yep. what? Oh, we are at class. Oh, we are at gold. Yep. Oh, what? What? This is, it's the same song. It's the yep. same pop song. Yep. I think since yeah, the there. demise of Lush, we've had a substitute in the form of uh, Joaquin Gomez and Sonia's show on 987 where they at least had a platform <laughs> for for like local acts. But again, that's just one show. Lush was an entire thing altogether. Mm. And that was... I, and and I, I'm not trying to, to, to exaggerate the significance of Lush. But you know, it really, it really did mean a lot to a lot of. As it, it, it really didn't mean a lot to like many of us. Was it a sad yeah. day when oh, the yeah, announcement was made? Mm. And I'm not, and I, I'm, I'm not someone who tuned into like radio regularly. But we knew its impact on other people, or at least like what they were doing. It did not directly benefit us, but we knew that they were important. And mm. then when we found out that like they weren't gonna be around, it was very sad, lah. Yeah. So talking about the landscape in 2020, um, you you mentioned about the dude that he has a very eclectic and he has a very wide uh, variety or range of, of listening. Uh, the appetite for his, his music is very wide. Mm. In, in 2020, anyone can curate a playlist on Spotify mm-hmm. and to have that eclectic taste. So does that old paradigm still translate to today? Uh, it's, it's definitely a, a, a different answer now because while we have unfettered access to music online, yep. 
it's also very very much curated and especially depending oh, on the service that you use. Yep, yep. Um, I would say that if you're talking about these, in a way, lack of a better word, sophistication of music taste, Gen Z has millennials and everyone else beat. Lah. The, the wide range of music they're listening to is far more than I would have listened to at their age. Uh, but at the same time, they also run the risk of relying on curated playlists where it's less about genre and more about mood. And oh, I think interesting. That, yeah, that is that is something that is now connecting with a gener- this generation. Because for us, genres were a way to be classified in a record store. Yep, or yep. these were terms that journalists would use when they didn't have enough time to describe the music with actual words. Uh. Mm. Um, but now that we've gone past that point where like uh, journalists... As, as journalists and record stores are being as have stopped being the arbiters of taste, now we've come to rely on streaming services because this is also a generation that does not does not know how to torrent. Really, all soul seek. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Have you had conversations about that before? Like they don't know how to torrent. I've had I've had specific conversations, and it's a general truth that like this younger generation relies on streaming so much that they don't know how to actually download for themselves. But again, generalization. There there will be Gen Z people who will know how to, and that's great. But it it torrenting it's becoming a bit of an old thing, so it's kind, it might just die with like millennials. No, torrenting is a bit torrenting is bad, folks. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah torrenting is really bad. Yeah, <laughs> please but, don't do it. But it's interesting you you brought it up because I read a I read an article I listened to a podcast recently about this guy mentioning about monoculture. Monoculture meaning because of uh, all these because a lot of our services right now is very tech infused and it's the buzzword. It's going to be the future and all that shit. Everybody is kind of watching about watching the same thing, talking about the same thing, listening to the same thing in a certain sense. So, and it really does uh, extinguish a bit of the individuality. Like to find something that is niche is a lot more difficult. There is none of that search anymore because uh, you being a DJ using vinyl, I can imagine that back then when there isn't a lot of vinyl, there isn't a lot of music. When you find something that you really like, I think there is a bit of a gem there. There is a bit of a... Uh, uh, speciality there. But I think these days it is so easy to access that people do take it for granted to a certain degree. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Hmm. It, it is, I, it is a real thing. Get, I, yeah, yeah, I've been trying to gather my thoughts also. I think just I kind of... Uh, do, do you want to say anything? I do agree though because actually it was something I was thinking about and reflecting on during Circuit Breaker because we had that extensive amount of time on our own and I think that was a time where people really it's either you go back to what you really liked and rediscover it or you sort of clear your backlog on things that you wanted yep, to yep. explore for a long time. But what I observed of the younger generation, loosely speaking again, that will offend so many people here, um, a lot of them were just pretty much watching what was on Netflix. Yep. And I thought that was a pity because there is a whole new world outside of Netflix itself, right? Like whether it's cult classic films whether it's 60s Japanese films or anything but it, they were just so it was just so convenient for them to just turn it on and watch whatever was there and it, I always wonder like do they uh, basically pause and wonder what else they can find on the internet so that is something I feel is a pity if people were so reliant on Netflix and not actually discover that sense of adventure and curiosity to what's outside so yeah, yeah. I think it's like the way that you view services like this as a service rather than as a tool 
Mm. So like, you know, for me, like if I'm searching out for a movie, I will see where it's on and then I'll find it. Yeah. But I don't really rely on like Netflix curation mm. or so. Like for me, if I want to see something, I'll probably go on like Letterboxd to Letterboxd. find. Yeah, you know, it, like it's such a wide repository of like movies out there. Mm. And like I, I want to find like what I want to watch and then I'll find where I can find it. Whether if it's on like Netflix or the Criterion channel. Mm. Um, again, I, I think that's actually a very good point because, it, and it's not just Gen Z or so, but like if you're talking about like the middle class in Singapore where a lot of them don't really have much spare time on their hands, they just rely on like what's trending on Netflix. Mm, and yes. it's so weird to think like, like even like a video service has like a trending list, mm. you know, what's top in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, crash landing on you or whatever. Too hot to handle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then selling Sunset right now or like our boys to men apparently. Yeah. Guys, what the fuck? And I think it's, 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 <laughs> To, to, to give them the benefit of that, it is it, it, it could be trending. It mm-hmm. could be that people watching it and then it, it just, there, there's a torrent of, of wave of people going in, but yeah. it could be commercialized and it could be skewed in a sense that someone paid for this particular spot and that's why, you, there, that's why there is this particular feature on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, the awareness, I think, is quite important mm. to to yeah, to sure, to sure. to realize for these particular services. Mm. Yeah, and and like I think that's actually a really good point because mm. like you know the way that you view paying for these services is very different. Mm. For some of them, they pay for it because they want it to be served to them. Yep. So mm. that once they go into the service, they are told like what is mm. what what is considered good to watch. And I felt like, in fact, for like at least for a brief period, we felt Netflix was a good arbiter of taste mm. until mm. the the quality of like Netflix like branded TV shows and movies started yeah. going down. I, I and I don't think that's just me because that was no, like that's a common consensus, agree, right? Yeah. yeah. For a period, I think like Netflix was like, pushing out like Orange and New Black and Stranger Things, like very Netflix. daring, bold like TV shows that also kind of declined also in their own way. But also, yeah, I think it just it came to a point where Netflix was like, um not just producing their own content but uh, distributing content that was already produced outside yep. and just slapping the Netflix like, yep. name on it and mm-hmm. then it just yeah it just it kind of showed that like Netflix was not a name of quality anymore mm-hmm. to me it's now just this service that I use to find stuff that I want to watch but if it's not Netflix I'll just find it somewhere else mm-hmm. yeah I think a lot of the media we watch and we consume is a lot one of it is controlled by all these platforms mm-hmm. and other, I think the, the next conversation to have is a lot of it is is blocked by I think intellectual property mm-hmm. yeah like a lot of the intellectual property is, is I think if, if Netflix can't have it, then it can't show, then you have to find some other means to get it. I think with regards to the torrenting, I think it's quite interesting because I think that kind of extinguishes the hunt. How mm-hmm. the, the hunt for, I think the, there's been an increasing trend or a very interesting trend where I think culture, culture becomes products. Products become, it used to be physical, a lot of physical things like magazines or like a very weird zine you find from the UK or from the US. But I think, Right now, a lot of these things are becoming more digital, intangible. And that that search or that hunt, that skill might be a bit lost because I think right now it's how, it's not about whether there's information out there. I think right now it's more about- Access? Knowing what to yeah. Google. Yeah. Because I think the, 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 the new generation coming up of kids, they are growing up in this particular era where mm. there is information. I think textbooks might become irrelevant within the next 10 years. But anyways, I think right now the skill to have really is how do you search for the information you want? And it, I think it, it also boils down to the interest that you have and like the amount of legwork, whether if it's like a figurative legwork or literal legwork where I might need to like visit stores or so. But I think what you were talking about also like brings on a very interesting point in like the trajectory of streaming services because aside from Netflix, there's also the big behemoth that is Disney. And mm. uh, Disney Plus has not come to Singapore yet. At least like, I don't know whether it will be in Singapore by the time that you listen to this. Mm. But um, I, I guess like the, the way Disney has conducted their own like uh, 
uh, their own company and the way that they have um, acquired acquired Oof. different companies and different catalogs has been controversial. Yep. I think the latest one has to do with their acquisition of 20th Century Fox. Yep. But also because now in America, I, I'm sorry if I'm going to go on a long tangent here, but like, you know, in Singapore, when it comes to cinemas, most of the time it's always new releases. Yes. Um, putting aside maybe a, a cinema like Projector where they tend to do retrospectives from time to time. But in America, like uh, when you have theaters all around the country or like in each state, there are many cinemas where they tailor towards old movies yep. or just like you go to the cinema to just see a movie that, that was already around like 10 years ago. Agree. But you can just go and watch it. Yep. Um, the way that Disney has conducted their own archive is that they have restricted this ac- restricted access to uh, for these cinemas to get their movies. Mm. Now, that would, wouldn't have been so much a problem like 20 years ago where like Disney was mainly family-friendly fair. But now, this, but now Disney owns Star Wars, they own the Marvel movies... And now they've owned the entire 20th Century Fox yep, catalog. And the catalog, yeah. And that, and that includes a lot of iconic movies. I mean, like, if you're thinking about, like, the Alien franchise, for one... Uh, is now, Harry Potter part of it? Harry Potter is from Warner Brothers. Okay, gotcha. So not yet. Not gotcha. yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just bringing on to the larger point that now they've already restricted the access of it, of, of like, these movies, you know? People who can't... Or people on a budget can't go to these cinemas and watch it because most of the time, like, these kind of older movies, they're cheaper to watch in the cinema. So you can just go over there for a good time. Yep. And um, now they've restricted, like, what... I think they call it, like, an exhibition type of screening. I, I believe that's the term. I might be wrong about that. But yeah, like, now they've really restricted that access. And, like, now that puts in question, you know, how are they going to treat home video when it mm. comes to, like, DVDs and yep. Blu-rays? Yep. Because now Disney's main product is the streaming service. Yep. And the fact that you pay access to a streaming service, you own none of the content. Yep. So Disney has Disney has the entire um they 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 have the entire say of like what kind of movies from their vault you you can have access to. And now that they have like control over the the Fox catalog or so means that your access to like a wide range of movies is gonna shrink. But yeah, like I, I think it's just more of like the fact that we've been able to have access to like all sorts of content. Now, in a way, the reverse is happening. Yes, because someone yeah. realized that they can make money of it. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I long for the days where, I don't know if you're a game, but you have to go and buy a physical CD, you have yeah. to put the CD in and you play yeah. the game. Yeah. But yeah. now with, not even music, like Steam as well. I think Steam was a big game changer. Yes, where, yes. As I said, physical products to digital to intangible. Yeah. Does it, does it, does it, does it scare you? Does it fuck you up when you think that the trajectory that Disney is on? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it, it's been a concern for like, uh, just like a, a culture of film fans in America, especially. And especially because America is like, they face the brunt of it because Disney Plus is already happening over there. Oh, yep. Yeah. And like, we are, we are only going to get it later on. But yeah, like, I, I think it's just that right now in terms of ownership, now ownership is being put into question whether or not studios are going to continue putting out DVDs that you can own and watch as many times as you want or if they're going to rely on streaming services where they get to decide how many times and for how long you get access to these movies. Mm. Yeah. go out and buy more DVDs yeah right Darren, now. Darren has an amazing DVD collection <laughs> he does and it's gonna does. be more precious like as the years go on <laughs> so is that your retirement fund <laughs> I think uh, I don't know f- f- uh, I think a lot of the things I own a lot of the things I collect don't really have any uh, monetary value not I mean, yet. I mean, a lot of them. I think they have more personal value than yeah. than, than than anything else. Uh, some of the records that I dig for, even they're not in the best condition. But like, there's like songs, certain singles, or just songs that have importance to me. Yeah, yeah. What about the vinyl that you have or you have collected over the years? Is there is there a sort of rarity to it now? Because 
vinyl has become this very exclusive or vinyl listening or like vinyl searching or vinyls in general has become this very niche part of music that maybe people are trying to do retrospectively to go back to listen to it but most people just listen to it through earbuds or headphones or everything so yeah. it has, has it become like a very like posh thing yeah I think I think humans we have uh, this uh, need to acquire or to hold physical to thing <laughs> to hoard I mean especially when you have the means to yep. and like you know it's for me when I was more actively kind of like looking or buying records you know I would go into a record store and then I'll you know kind of like dig or kind of look around and see this and it's like oh my god I love this uh, I really love this uh, record when I was like you know four or five years ago I was searching for it okay I'm gonna buy it now um, and keep it away and like you know stuff like that so you same lah Daniel I, I feel same but I feel like I'm not gonna speak any further because I'm gonna go down to like another wormhole of <laughs> talking about vinyl collections but like yeah who has the bigger collection there, yeah. 100%. Oh, that was quick. That was a very, very 100%. quick answer. So how big is this more of yours if he has the bigger collection? Um, I think it's just more of like my personal feelings about like vinyl collecting as a whole. And also like, I guess now in 2020, considering the vi- environmental impact of pressing records or so, there is a it, has, it has proven to be very unhealthy for the environment. Okay. And like that's very conflicting for someone like me who wants to collect vinyl, but at the same time is very concerned about climate change. <laughs> but those products are already pressed. Uh, yeah, but uh, labels are also at, at that point where they are at a rush to press even more because there is a supposed demand for records. Mm. Yeah. So right right now, there are alternative solutions to press, to be more mindful when pressing records. But from what I've understand or from what I've read, it's going to take a while. Yeah. I, I'm not going to go into it because, yeah, again, it's going to be another wormhole or so, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. So... With regards to the name uh, Singapore Community Radio, can you describe to me what the definition of community is like for each of uh, the the three of you, and what are the types of communities that you were involved in uh, growing up? Does does it does the answer trace back to the type of culture that you were in? Yeah. So please describe the the, the definition of community. Community community center. Okay. Uh, well, uh, a place for everybody to congregate mm. to uh, discuss things okay mm, what what community mean to you Daniel community means Ohana and Ohana <laughs> means never get left behind <laughs> man I don't have a straight answer man I, like, I think it's speaking as someone who has always kind of been at the fringes Mm. I've never been an active participant or a community leader per se. Okay. I've always just, it, I, I'm not going to say, uh, oh, I'm an outsider and I wear a fucking Akira t-shirt. Uh. But like, I, I'm like, I'm just like, I'm just like someone who has always been active in engaging in communities and like cultures, but I've never been steeped in one. But I guess if you're, if you're talking about music culture, then maybe yes. Okay. But yeah, like, uh, I, I guess like it's, I guess that the term community feels abstract to me only because like, I, I was never fostered enough in one to really define, have a proper definition of community. But I think, you know, to me, I guess uh, the definition of community is is a, an environment of people who are supportive of each other. And there is always a sense of um, belonging fostered. And um, I guess something that exists outside of like, you know, the corporate capitalist side of Singapore. 
I see so, you really hit. That's the fifth you time like, you're using that yeah, word. Yeah. Yeah. You have a you have a you have, you have a lot of grips against uh, capitalism. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean that's why uh, I think like uh, I invited Daniel to join the team. Yep. Uh, first of all, he helps me articulate things way Aww. much better than I do. Yep, yep. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm just a peacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, like again, when I when I use the c word, you know, like uh, I think it's also because I have the lack of like uh, articulation in like defining these theories or so mm. and i just end up resorting to using the word anyway but like you know mm. like i think mm. for all of us or so we always we are always having the challenge of like trying to properly define how we feel yeah. and i think that's how a lot of singaporeans feel or so where like we in, in a way we can't really find the right words and like yeah. you know so actually i had i i've heard this very interesting theory that you know why they say Singaporeans are generally very emotionless mm. it's not that we're emotionless but we lack the vocabulary to describe oh, how we're feeling man. it's like you don't say you're livid you just say that yeah, I'm, I'm upset or oh, I'm, I'm yeah check that actually impacts a little bit of our emotional intelligence or emotional sophistication in a way and also that openness because we were told yeah. never really to discuss yeah. Yeah. feeling mm. like mm. that and our feelings like you know yeah. so mm. We we all in a way it's like it's it's a cultural suppression. Mm. So because of that, the vocabulary also like uh, suffers lah. Mm. So I, I guess right now again like you know this generation is learning to form their own vocabulary. Yeah. So a lot of it is steeped in you know social justice issues. So yeah. so therefore it's it's very international kind of words. So but I'm sure like you know in Singapore we're, we're gonna find like you know our own kind of vocabulary that's also beyond just using Singlish. Mm. And like it and, and like to me like you know the the ideal way is always mixing Singlish and English together because to me I never I never believed in speak good English ah. Okay, or at least well. just 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 something that's always been systematic for us and now we're also unlearning that mm. then like there's never really a right way to speak English and that English is just as valid as English or so yep yeah agree so Huyen, with regards to communities what's your definition of it and were you involved in any uh, growing up it's such a grassroots question uh, actually when you asked that question I thought of this line that someone and that heard over the ethos ethos um, what was that Ethos the the panel, yeah, the panel. Yeah. So they, I think, at the end of the panel, they sort of wrapped up discussing the idea of an echo chamber, echo chamber, and whether that was good or bad, right? Which I thought what they said was very nice because uh, I think naturally we think echo chamber is something very negative mm. in that you are sort of circle jerking. <laughs> Daniel's favorite word, other favorite word, <laughs> um, circle jerking within your own circle of friends in a way, right? But but the way they sort of saw echo chamber was um, solidarity. It was a community of people that supported you or sort of bounced off the same values as you so that you don't feel so alone in this journey. So I thought that was really, really nice. I took that off that that panel and I really, yeah, I felt like that kind of encapsulated what community meant for me. But not saying that we only work within our echo chamber because I think mm. we do need a breakthrough to, to people who are not your typical consumers of arts and culture. And that's kind of the point for SGCR. So for all yes, of us exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so I do think that's community one, supportive network, but also... I think the definition of community, why it's so hard to pin down, pinpoint, it's because it's ever evolving. Because the idea of community, what it actually means, what it means to you and me is very different, right? And it will probably change two years from now, four years from now, for example. So, um, which I think it's why SGCR is always evolving. Because I don't think we know what we're doing either. But we're just trying to figure yeah, we're, out, we're, like, you know. We're just yeah. constantly <laughs> evolving. Uh, well, you know, looking at... Uh, what's happening around the world and yeah. kind of like evolving it to kind of uh, or even in Singapore itself and kind yeah. of evolving it to uh, well best suit our needs yeah. in a way it's almost like not not shoehorning ourselves into just one 
structure of doing things yeah. but rather leaving it kind of open-ended to see who comes along what kind of collaborators we have what conversations we should be having so so I, I believe um, SGCR has always been steeped as uh, Darren mentioned about in vinyl and music culture mm. per se how does like looking forward from 2020 even to 2021 how do you guys plan to to change that particular notion how do you guys plan to bring in uh, these different communities yeah. that might be so different from uh, one another yeah. into this particular uh, ecosystem well for one we'll be uh, well we have already uh, at this point when you're listening to this podcast have already introduced uh, a series of uh, different podcasts mm. with different collaborators from like the film mm. film uh, industry industry, industry the literary scene the performance arts visual arts uh, yeah. Yeah. even uh, I mean like the zine makers yeah. and all that and not uh, you know just kind of like a kind of like hit and go kind of a kind of aspect we will be uh, I mean we have been constantly or will be constantly uh you know engaging in them and you know allowing them to actually you know bring their their point of views uh you know their expertise and kind of like sharing it with uh the larger community in mm. fact and i mean at some point also i mean encouraging kind of like a cost collaboration between the collaborators that are mm. on the you know our platform itself yeah. okay uh and yeah. yeah i think what's nice is that it's almost right from the start the three of us realized we're not experts in any of these other fields like the two of them are very much in music right but we knew we had to really work with the the people already existing in our culture in our communities and bring them in rather than doing it ourselves and claiming to be the experts in all these things so so I think from there onwards it was us sort of saying that we don't want to create our own silo community but rather we want to work with what's already in Singapore because it's yeah. not that it doesn't exist it's just that there needs to be something that sort of brings everybody together. Yeah. So I think that's how we're trying to move beyond uh, music itself. Mm. So, so this idea of cross-pollination of like different disciplines and even different fields, do you think it's the way things might be evolving within the next two to three years? Because we, we did talk about initially about how things are a bit insular back then, mm. uh, a bit closed off. You have to, I guess, quote unquote, prove your worth to a certain degree before it's very closely guarded. Like the secrets are all very closely guarded. But I think right now with how readily available information is, it's very open. Like you, um, collaboration is encouraged as, as what you guys are doing. What, what, what What's everyone's thoughts on that? Well, I guess like um, the way that I hope that it would at least like ideally it would turn out is that there would be a um I guess just a general I guess in a very abstract term it's just a sense of openness. So the idea that a an exhib an, an exhibition is not something out of reach for anyone. Where whether if it's if it's like a physical access or like just the idea of even going to one. Um I think it's just like trying to 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 I guess break notions of like the different kinds of events or the different kinds of people that exist within these spheres and within these restrictions that like, you know, it's not so, it's not so inaccessible because I, I, I think for someone like myself, when I grew up, especially with the internet, I, I, I saw the internet as a way for me to really explore and for me to just not really restrict myself in one way mm. and just like in, in what I consume and what I learn. And like, I felt like that was, you know, you know, that's, that's really one of the positive impacts of, of the internet as well. But also, yeah, I, I, not really comparing it directly as UCR, but like I think that is just the idea that I hope to see, where like the the, the idea of have of being open minded is normal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So by saying that 
it's not normal for now to be it's a bit more we want to plant the seed we want to plant the seeds Mm. yeah for sure and like yeah the the idea is that we are not going to be the arbiters of like to say what is and isn't open-minded or so Mm. or like what is considered cultural but we are creating one platform and i hope that also kind of plants the seeds for like other platforms yeah in a lot of ways also we uh you know want to be kind of uh, aggregators of uh you know a lot of like the other platforms that are existing in singapore because uh you know we are we don't we know we view ourselves as like oh yeah we are the you know that one source to of like you know we are experts in like this we believe that everybody should be you know coexisting uh you know together we are only a very very small uh, country with a very kind of a small demographic if we are looking at you know a, a niche kind of a you know thing like arts and music uh yeah we should all help each other out you know this i think something that we have learned from uh, the pandemic that uh, we all need each other to survive mm. basically yeah. we come with love <laughs> and cookies la. <laughs> <laughs> yep that so um Daniel What's up? <laughs> yeah you I'm very very curious to know your thoughts about you you mentioned something about uh capitalism and it infusing to what's the the creative side yeah I do you do you see that there are benefits to it because through these various means it it gives creatives it gives platform art in its vaguest term a, a much wider platform mm-hmm. due to the, the the vehicle of capitalism mm-hmm. and do you think that it is it's more like a we're in a very privileged position because we are able to ha- after having gone through the, the cycles and the many decades of uh, quote unquote wealth building as a nation we are able to stand at this particular point and uh, decide for ourselves what would be beneficial I guess for the, the, the creative spirit or even the soul of, of, of Singapore because after having gone through because I, I think when I was growing up the word pragmatism is very very common it's it's, it's, it's almost it's inbuilt in ours it is a common social fabric now. It, it is inbuilt it's weaved into the, the the decisions that people will tell you you have yeah. to be pragmatic you have to be practical I think these two P's the, the last P isn't really said practical it's P, it's pragmatic passion yeah it's it is it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not really uh, talked about yeah. yeah, your passion is kind of downplayed. You kind of have for to sure, take sure. practical means. Uh, you have to find out what works. You have to find out what pays in the end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this. I'm, I'm really going to try my best to answer that. It is a loaded question, but also a really good question. And also, I, I'm only going to answer from my limited experience and also my also understanding of like the way capitalism, capitalism works and it's also, and how it's denigrating to, you know, creativity. Um, a, f- a guy that I have gotten to know Although I've not been in touch with for a while, his name is Troy Chin. He is an illustrator and a writer, and um, he has a series of um, graphic novels called *The Resident Tourist*. And uh, he's someone who considers himself as a Singaporean, but he's also someone who spent a lot of time overseas. And he was in the corporate world for a while. In fact, like he was working in a major music label, and then uh, he was kind of jaded, you know, from his experience over there. Even though like it was a very comfy uh, position, so he came back to Singapore. You know, he kind of like reignited his love for um, writing and drawing. Mm-mm. So he then took on the arduous task, task of being a full-time illustrator and writer. Unfortunately, I've not kept in contact with him, so I don't know what he's up to now. But this is like from my time spent with him years ago. But yeah, I, I think again, like, you know, the, 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 the idea of like passion, again, is being sold to us because like it's something that 
that people people can pursue their dreams, you know, like it's and, a very uh, attractive narrative. It's it's a very attractive narrative, and it's also something that it's that's also marketable, and that itself, passion and like um, and and uh, pursuing your dreams, that is something that can also that you can also sell to people. Yep. Um, I remember he did tell me also that uh, passion is something that you can only have for a short period of time, or you can have in short bursts. Everything else is just the hard work. Mm. And the hard work also includes navigating a landscape that is quite unforgiving to creatives and quite unforgiving to creative people. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm just gonna like stop myself short, you know, because I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna delve into like the specifics of it or so. At least this is just from what I've understand. At least being experienced being like a writer in Singapore or so. But it's it's definitely been taxing to a lot of creative people, whether it's artists or like you know musicians, filmmakers. And um, again, like if we're talking about the benefits, of course, uh, for sure. I guess it, it depends on like where the money comes from and what the money dictates. You know, does the money dictate that the form and content be bent to the will of the person that gives the money to it? Yep. Or like, is the money in a way like a bit of like an angel investment where the money is there, do what you want. Mm. And you know, there are some artists, you know, where, where, where the way that they will approach content or like what they do. Again, they can be pragmatic where like they will consider the needs of the client and then like they will adjust accordingly or someone who is a bit more uncompromising where they feel like their work is their work and the money can come. If the money is there, it has to benefit the artist. Yep. Yeah, and, and they're not going to consider the client's point of view. But those are also in a way like two different ends. There's so, a balance, really. Yeah, there's a balance. So it's still a spectrum of like, you know, artists in Singapore. But I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have like one way to answer it. And I think like it will probably be more articulated better by the creatives themselves. The people who have navigated like these these systems like day to day. Yeah. Um I have to ask you to elaborate a little bit on the specifics as to you said you, you mentioned you're a writer. Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit on the struggles you've faced? Ah, okay. So specifically I started out as a music writer. And well, what what is a music writer? Uh so I I I practice music journalism. So you know I write about bands, I write about musicians, yep. I write album reviews, interviews, yep. the like. Yep. So it's basically just like a cultural journalist, but you know, spe- specifically one part of culture. Gotcha. Um, where I've where I've been able to practice it, well, firstly, I started on Bandwagon, which was mm. it was a it's an independent company, and it went, when I joined, it was a startup. Mm. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. So already, like, I joined it when I got out of NSRD. Like, I just went straight into the work, and like, this is something that I cultivated, you know, my own free time. And that was where I kind of practiced being a freelance writer, you know, and trying to uh, find work. But, you know, Ben Wigan was like, in you know, the first place I did call home. Lah. Um, it was a company, you know, founded by someone who very much wanted, who very much had fairly altruistic um, uh, goals and achievements in mind for the company, you know, to kind of nurture a music scene. Yep. But at the same time, he he was also well aware of like the challenges faced in trying to run a company like that in Singapore where, you know, there's no precedent for it. Mm. Maybe the, maybe at most it's like Big O back then. Gotcha. But like, you know, the way that Big O operated is something that is a mystery to us because we don't have the details. So there's no template. There's yeah, it's no not template. Yeah. Really model to follow. Like. For sure, exactly. And like, you know, that was one thing where like I was brought in as a co-editor and then uh, then on the managing editor and like I was tasked with developing the content but you know part of it dealt with like editorials and um, client work client yep. work basically 
And like, you know, that, that was something that I just kind of accepted that this is just part of it. This part and parcel, you have to do it in order for the company so, to survive. But in a way, I was also given leeway to develop the brand and to nurture the kind of like uh, style of writing and the kind of music that we covered. So I did have the freedoms, but you also, it's, I guess to, to simplify is a bit of a give and take. Okay. Um, same time, yeah, same, same, uh, uh, same thing, I guess, like, you know, compared to like journalists in like SPH or like more, more established companies, I, I was not exactly paid like a, a high salary, mm. but I really enjoyed what I did. And it was something where I got to hone my skills. So I think that was great. Um, just kind of like fast forwarding now to SGCR, you know, in some ways I'm back where I started where now in a way SGCR is kind of like a startup where we are now kind of like building from the ground up, but you know, I'm coming in with like very different experiences and also just having to see where the limits of music writing is in Singapore because of a music industry that's also not very well developed. Mm. So if, if it's an industry that's already not very well developed, there's only so much you can do. Agreed. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about the industry? Because I've heard conflicting thoughts that mm-hmm. it is still very small and it will always remain in like small in a sense that it will it will reach or it has reached the capacity until something externally comes or the state or something externally comes and brings everybody up. It will always remain like this because I think the conversation was along the lines of that it will come in waves and there will be major hits and then it will die down. Then another wave or I think new people coming up, then it will die down. There's always like a, there is no like consistent like up and up. I think Darren can add in because he's also been in the music scene and industry longer than me as well. Yeah, I think like music uh, in general is cyclic. Uh, It goes through, uh, you know, waves uh, and cycles. Yeah, I've seen this kind of, uh, you know, waves in local music kind of like, you know, coming through and through all the time. Uh, I think a lot of it or it doesn't really carry on on a plateau, uh, you know, for very long. It's also because I think that there isn't like much, uh, well, in the past, like kind of like mainstream radio, like support. Yep. Uh, we don't have the benefits of like college radio stations. Like, college uh, radio stations. Like, like in America where, you know, you have like college uh, yep. radio stations where it's like, you know, within certain campuses and then student, you know, student kind of like hosts and then honing the craft. Oh. And like, you know, having that whole infrastructure of yep. like, you know, of I think the music industry is just like kind of like non-existent you know, kind of sets back the industry within Singapore a lot. Yes, there are good artists. There will be artists. However, the supporting people that are behind it, there's never been, uh, there, there's never been enough supporting people or like never, people never really saw the... Appeal? The upsides, the appeal of, you know, being a supporting character. Everybody wants to be that star. Yep. And there is... I think what happens to uh, Singapore is the that's the biggest downfall. Interesting. Yeah. Would you say that uh, that is something that SGCR is trying to cultivate, like to 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 provide that framework to for upcoming artists to to. I, I would say that was definitely very very uh, ambitious. It's okay. not something that I would want to do, but of course, if there's any way we can, you know, help to. I guess, uh, propagate or push up local artists, uh, yeah, we will definitely, uh, you know, try our very best 
Yeah, and I mean the eventuality of like Singapore, uh, community radio is you know obviously to kind of export or kind of package together that uh, you know Singapore culture from the you know external eyes looking in, it, 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 you know like looking in and this is like what exists in Singapore. You, there's one place uh, that you can kind of like look in, be it a website or social media and you'll be able to kind of like you know condense this whole creative industry or this creative view and you know look at it interesting um out of curiosity i'm just curious to know if what what is something that you guys have consumed recently that surprised you hmm. wow well, so quiet <laughs> yeah man <laughs> I think like uh, and you say wait something that we consume so any kind of content that sure. surprised us yeah if you don't say food or okay, but that's the cop out <laughs> in Singapore it's always food uh. I mean we, we, we just ate Kaylee roast meat shout, hey. out, shout out to Kaylee roast Why meat you go there man huh it's terrible no honestly it surprised me because it's better than I remembered <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh Okay, this is gonna sound very like pretentious, but I recently picked up uh, Pablo Neruda's um, oh, poetry books. Okay, and actually, there's one poetry that he wrote four hundred years ago. No, actually, forty years ago. <laughs> that was very, very relevant to uh, to our times now, which is basically talking about how uh, life life sort of needs to slow down and quieten down, so we can hear our own thoughts and really reevaluate our relationship with the earth and the universe around us, which I thought was actually quite apt to to the times that we're living now. So yeah, and I think this is a theme that I've been talking about a lot. It's just generally how times have changed or how things hasn't changed for the last 40, 20 years. So so that's something that I guess has been quite surprising to me that actually, you know, maybe we're not as progressive as we think we are, mm. but yeah, we're progressing in different ways than we think we are anyway. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I have like uh, you know knowledge acquisition ADHD. I <laughs> consume. I consume. I have like this thirst for knowledge at certain points of time. Very weird ones. Yeah. So I mean, I'll have short bursts in interest in things. Yeah. So I think the past few days, uh, we're probably actually trying to find out the history of I guess uh, Taiwan and Korea in terms of like culture mm-hmm. uh, you know how they came into being political systems and like that and there was kind of I saw kind of like a similarity between like the two in a okay. sense yeah and like uh, in fact how f- even though it was kind of a bad thing then how the Japanese influence kind of in a way maybe could have could benefit like uh, not could but like uh, it's more like impacted impacted or benefited okay their future or like their current state mm. yeah I mean that, that was like what was going through my mind as I was kind of like searching through you know YouTubes <laughs> websites <laughs> uh, yeah just anything that I could get my hands on on yep. the internet yep. to kind of like read or watch about it was yeah. it spurred on by anything? Well, I think we were, uh, I was kind of just like reading up on like Taiwan and then just kind of like, well, cause we were doing, or we have uh, actually a, a podcast series mm-hmm. uh, that is introducing kind of a Taiwanese, uh, indie or Chinese uh, alternative and indie music. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, Where can people find it? It'll be on SGCR. 
Okay. Yeah, as, as you listen to this, it will probably be up already. Probably. Hopefully. I hope, I hope. I'm praying that it is. Yeah, so I mean, I, I went in, uh, you know, in that, with that thing and then like it just, I just went into an internet black First hole. research, la. Yeah, well, no, it was just self-interest. And then <laughs> falling into this kind of like hole of like digging up more information. Why is Taiwan mm-hmm. like that? Mm. Why, you know, how, why do the the creatives, the musicians, you know, that have this certain kind of like view, especially, I guess, the more independent ones, the younger ones growing up. And then like, uh, then after that, you know, actually looking into Korea as well and seeing how, you know, they kind of like came out of the war, uh, you know, came out of, uh, you know, the, f- I guess the, of conflict the 40s and 50s like you know both these countries coming out from then and how they develop into i guess in their own way superpowers in yep. their own yep. yeah mm. actually i thought of another one i'm gonna hijack you no, please, go, <laughs> please, 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 please go have you thought of anything no they don't stress okay so i was actually reading this book by school of life um which is oh, a collective yep, in the yep, uk yep. telling you about you know things about life, right? So they have this dictionary where uh, they try to explain different terms that's used in culture and emotional intelligence. So there was one term that is about cultural mining, which is basically telling us to reframe the way we view art and culture because most of the time, um, this actual artwork's context are actually taken... It's actually... Sorry, sorry. Let me rephrase that. This actual artworks are actually taken out of the actual context because they typically need to be reframed for us to understand and feel relatable to it in our current times. So it is in the curator's um, role or in the, the institution's role or the presenter's role to actually take it out of their context and reframe it in a way that we will find um, relevant to us to this date. So I thought like, okay, actually that was quite relevant to whatever we're doing, but also in a way we consume things as well, especially if it comes with a lot of heritage, right? That actually what we're reading about the art right now may not be the, the intention from the artist itself, but it's being presented in this way. Mm. So it's like, what is our role in that, in, in interpreting it and also presenting it? So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, cultural mining. Hmm. Interesting term. Huh? I think it's also like the, the, the role of curators, like it's it's limited and like, Again, institutional racism or so, the kind of curators yeah. that get to dictate the kind of narratives, especially for like indigenous cultures or so. Yeah. Like it, I think a lot of what we've learned, like we kind of need to like go back and then like find out new narratives or so. Because again, like now, now I guess like the art world's also opening up. At yeah. least from what I understand, I don't know, I don't know how it is now, yeah. but like, yeah, you're, you're getting new creators and new voices so coming yeah. in and then putting different spins or so. So, and anyway, I get a bit more historically accurate as well, right? Yeah, so SM, SM actually recently did a panel talk with the director of PS1, MoMA PS1 from mm. New York. So she actually brought up a very interesting point about how um, traditionally in a society, the two most important institutions is education and museums because they actually educate people in a different way. So mm-hmm. right now, I think because there's a lot of like social activism going on, a lot of people are actually targeting museums in the States because they realize the importance of it in terms of representation or curation or whatever. So she did acknowledge that that was a closet, that was a skeleton, a closet that they did not want to review for the longest mm-hmm. time. And um, it is now that they are truly trying to reflect on how they are representing the society. And if, if a society actually manages to get their museums to change the way it, it operates the way it represents right is actually a big step for us um activism wise so i thought that was like pretty pretty insightful yeah yep <laughs> what was the question again <laughs> oh, something that you recently consumed that surprised you huh okay uh maybe i can go into like local movies on netflix sure <laughs> 
yeah. to watch, man. Surprising because like, yeah, I, I guess like now now I'm slowly starting to either watch or rewatch certain kinds of local movies. So at least the Singaporean movies. I think Netflix has done a really good job in terms of like adding all of these movies into onto a service that's instant instantly accessible. I think we've already talked about like the I guess like in a way the accessibility of Netflix and like, you know, it's curation or so and how people tend to rely on it. Sure. But yeah, I, I think again, it's become a great tool, you know, to, to explore these movies and also to kind of take them out of like the time that they were made or so, because now we get to, we, we, we get to experience them in a vacuum. You know, we, we're not really, we're not really experiencing the various factors that, you know, affected these movies and the way that they shaped these movies. Yep, yep. So like in a way, you know, certain movies have not really aged very well. Sure. But it's also taking into account like the, you know, the time that they, they do come from. And then like, that's where it's either you can really appreciate it or you can just find out it's really not for you. Uh, I watched 12 Stories, which like, What's again, that? 12 Stories is by Eric Koo. So okay. Eric Koo being one of Singapore's most celebrated filmmakers, he was instrumental in uh, establishing an independent filmmaking scene in Singapore. Uh, 12 Stories was the, I guess, one of like the breakout movies that he had and like one of the milestones in his career. And I thought it was fine. I mean, like it was, it was actually very enjoyable for one. Narratively, I felt like it was lacking a lot of areas, and like the acting again, good and bad. You know, some areas I, I felt were quite cringeworthy. Sure, I mean, for a lot of better word, cringeworthy. But some, some of the, some of like the dramatic performances were quite powerful. So it's, I think, what what I would say is surprising is because, I guess, again, like you know, once time develops on, we we are kind of we kind of look onto certain pillars, you know, as part of like Singaporean culture is like in a way untouchable. Like uh, I, I guess like in one way someone like Eric Koo has always been praised also. So like you don't really hear a lot of criticisms by Eric Koo. But I guess now with you know the accessibility of like you know watching these kinds of movies or so and for you to post your opinions online, I'm also wondering how that will affect uh, or like how that would shape, you know, uh current modern opinions of like mm. such movies where we were not able to experience them when they were out, you know, for the first time. Mm. Uh yeah, I I I I can't really elaborate further. Or rather, I I feel like I can't articulate that now because I'm also very tired. <laughs> okay. Uh, I also watched Wantan Me and like a boy's the man. Okay, a boy's the man is one thing. Wantan Me is in another way even more excruciating than a boy's the man. Excruciating in what sense? Yeah. God damn, man, you gotta watch the movie for yourself. <laughs> Why? I, like, uh, what what is it about it? It's about a writer, like a, he's like a veteran food writer. Okay. Um, he he goes to all the fine dining restaurants in Singapore. He has a very refined palate, but at the same time, he has a soft spot for the wonton me near his house. You know, it's it's kind of like that dichotomy of someone who is cultured, but at the same time holds a holds holds like you know like like the the um the the simple the 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 I guess like the simple elements of like what what is formative for him as a Singaporean. That's something that he treasures a lot. So the the movie's central premise comes in when he has to interview all these hawkers and all these chefs in Singapore um, who've built up their own enterprises, you know, in various yep. ways, you know. Some are established restaurants, some are, some are just simple stalls and kopitiams and they all have their own stories to tell. And I felt like that part, which was actually meant to be like some sort of like a documentary part of the movie. There was a dr- dramatized part of the movie and there's a documentary part of the movie and the documentary part was very insightful. You get to hear these stories from these people. Mm, interesting. In, in a very unfiltered way that is not like our Makan places lost and found shit. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I've not heard this <laughs> for a long time. So like, I... I think it was the dramatized part that was like really honestly awful to even see yeah. because like the, 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 the I have w- to agree yeah you watched it yourself yeah. right and like 
just the the sheer the sheer um I, I can't even find the right word right now but like the I guess the, the the perspective of like viewing local food and culture sure I feel like it was very authentic and it comes from like a very and from a very genuine place but like when you when you see dramatized in the movie the contrast of a a writer who who treasures local uh, local food compared to like a younger writer who goes to like the inverted comma hipster cafes oh okay, uh, okay that's where a bit of the tension comes into the movie this young writer who is like well meaning but is supposedly clueless in local food which I find it very hard to believe okay um It, it 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 has a very condescending tone in the entire movie not to mention very wooden acting as well so like it just makes it even less believable that this is like a real story when especially when you put it alongside the footage of real hawkers telling real stories and their real struggles in Singapore yeah it's just quite an excruciating experience it's a weird divide like it's even with a very weird divide man and like I don't even know how this movie is developed because like if it's like a 70 minute long movie and like it feels like a feature length Uh, Singapore Tourism Board advertisement. Oh, yikes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. And like, uh, even some of like the weird choices in the movie in terms of the sound mixing and like the way that they shoot the food. The the, the way that they shoot the food, firstly, like just feels like a guy who whipped out his iPhone and just kind of like shot like a hawker, like like cooking like a batch of like chakui teow. Gotcha. There's, there's nothing really, there's nothing really appealing to the eye about it. Not, not, not saying that it should look appealing, but there's nothing cinematic that, that looks, that, that looks like it. And I felt like that was, Such a weird, weird uh, aesthetic decision for a feature-length film movie, and this is a movie that, I, if I'm not mistaken, debuted at like the Berlin International Film Festival, mm. and it has a cameo appearance by an international actress at the end. I won't say who you. I I highly Scarlett recommend Jumenta. watching it. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, but you could say she was the Scarlett Johansson of a day. Sure. Yeah. Did it come out recently or was it old? 2015. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, a very inexplicable movie, man. I I had no idea about this movie till I saw it Same. like appear, and I was like, "What is this okay. wonton me?" Okay, and, like, and you watched it as well. And then I just like, okay, it's about food. Okay, let's just watch it. <laughs> and then like, uh, how long yeah. did you get into it? <laughs> well, I finished it. Okay, uh, but you know the the dramatization was very very. Like he said, cringy. Yeah, it's like, what is this storyline? It's like, oh my god, it just feels like a. Like a guy who has never stayed in Singapore, directing Singaporeans and like writing the dialogue and directing the way that they should be behaving towards each other, it just feels very natural. Like just like when you watch that, you're like, that's not how Singaporeans behave, or that's not how Singaporeans talk. Which is just funny, right? Because it's both films are by Eric Khoo. One yeah. is so quintessentially Singaporean Correct, in exactly. its characterization, but Which the other one is just like, like they're both by the same director. No, they're both by the same director. Yeah, they're both by exactly. the same director. I, I thought. Uh, he produced. No, no, he's very, no, he very cool. Well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. was it like a high concept thing to put, portray Singaporeans <laughs> from an outside lens or something? Which is why we suspect it's STV. <laughs> yeah, and mm, yeah, it, it could just be like yeah. a quasi government government kind of project. Quasi. Uh, from what I understand, I might be wrong, but a little fact that I did learn about this movie was that when it debuted in Berlin, there was a competition that challenged local uh, locals in German chefs. To come up with their own twist on like a Singaporean dish. Oh, sounds that like definitely, so it definitely really does sound like an ad campaign. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that it sounds like the Gordon Ramsay thing. Dude, yes, yeah. STV. So like, I, I, I highly encourage you watch the movie because like, I feel like it's such a bizarre movie. Like watching it just feels like I'm in a simulation. Okay, like, I think you are, but sure. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. Oh my god, I simulation guys. <laughs> but yeah, like, like watching it just feels like a simulation of Singaporean life. And like, it just feels so strange that this comes from the guy who made 12 stories. 
again, like I I I only have like a limited experience and also like limited experience watching movies. This guy has made more movies and seen more movies I ever done in my life. But like, god damn, it's such a bizarre watch. What about our boys to men? You had something. To say our boys to men. Our boys to men. Man, it's like you love if it. If you are, if you are, if you are, um, if you are in it to watch it, you know what you're getting yourself into, man. <laughs> Mm. And yeah. like all I can say is that our voice to men for all for for how for how um transparently awful it is it's an entertaining watch only if you go in expecting the worst. Okay. And by entertaining meaning like you get a lot of like you know cringe content sure and like you know like you you get the you get the hallmarks of genuine acting. <laughs> you know how they talk like this and then they talk a different story mm. and the voice goes up and down. Everyone talks like that, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Fucking irritating. Mm. And, uh, but yeah, but it, but it becomes like, it becomes like oh, a, a very like, entertaining part of it. That's like the Singaporean equivalent to Texas accent. <laughs> Isn't it? It's like that towing. <laughs> Except that, yeah, even in people in Texas, they don't even talk like yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, almost like a fetishized way of like Over a local, a local, a uh, local way of speaking. Which was kind of what yeah. they did in Crazy Rich Asian, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. That few people that spoke English spoke Coaching in such like overexertion. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, you're right. Such a and then whereas you got Akafina, who is supposedly Singaporean but has like the strangest black scent ever. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I think that was one of the criticisms about I think the Singaporean social thing about mm. the, the 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 series on Netflix. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I have to say, like that was entertaining also because when you go into reality TV, it's you also there's also a sense of suspension and disbelief. Because of like the the high stakes that that's involved in reality TV to the way that's produced, so you also know that a lot of it's scripted or a lot of it's dictated by producers behind the cameras. So when you go in, you just expect entertainment, and I and I would say that actually Singapore social actually provides a lot of entertainment. It is entertaining. Yeah. It is. Entertaining. Yeah. It really is. Do you think that awareness is necessary though? Going to like even these mediated content <laughs> such as this, like you have to know that it is through the perspective of an individual. You have to know whether there are any commercial elements in it. You have to know, you have to know what you're getting into even before consuming. And I think my point is that do you think it's important to to kind of have a have a have have a have a health have a healthy diet of what you're consuming yeah, for mentally? Sure. For sure. Definitely. For sure. Definitely. I mean, you need you need that plethora of consumption to be holistically discerning, isn't it? Wow, I'm yeah. just yeah. struggling for words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like when you come when it comes to even like news itself, it's yeah. always yeah. it always benefits to read more than one source, yeah. especially when there is a question mark of like, is this real? Is this for real? Am I reading this correctly? We're all AIs. Yeah, uh, you know. We, we can't be just like reading one source and then like posting it up on our socials and, and then starting to like, you know, having a bitch or like commending it, you know. Mm. It's like uh, we need to be discerning to what we read and what we believe. Yeah. And I think also just personally, you may have a very strong point of view, but it's always important to understand the other point of view before you pass your own judgment. Just so that Firstly, you have a stronger ammunition, right? Because you kind of can say, I understand what the other side is saying. Hence, I still disagree because so-and-so. And also just so you're fair and you're not imposing your own opinions on people. So I think, yeah, balanced diet. And also opening the space to, to, to learn and understand, yeah. and understand that you will be wrong. Yeah. And even like, I think the stuff that I said tonight where like probably <laughs> I feel like I'll probably be more informed by learning from other people and then like my opinions will grow from there. Sure. Mm. Like I, I think like, 
you, you know, like Singapore, like like Singaporeans, they treasure the both sides narrative. The fence. Uh. The, yeah, the fence. Like being devil's advocate, I think that's like an e-drink man woman kind of shit that like they, oh, they the love. the forum uh. thing, right? I mean, yeah. but yeah, I, I'm just using it in like a very oh, okay, term. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just that sometimes the lack of conviction is what tends to push people towards the fence. Um, so while we should also be understanding and also be open, you know, it's it it never really hurts to really be grounded in a truth uh, that yeah. you really feel like conviction that you carry around with you. Yeah. Yeah, I think I personally think that it's a sore lack of internet etiquette, not just in Singapore, but I think globally. I think we talked about in the beginning that yeah, you can learn how to to defend or to be to be aware of, like all the threats and all the links, suspicious or not. But I think uh the 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 conversation about empathy, physical empathy, like face to face, yeah, we are getting there. But I think online, I mm-hmm. think that's a whole different story because I think we are catching up. We're catching up to the technology that has afforded us the the global platform that right now you can turn on Instagram, you look at someone from, I don't know, Africa doing some something else. And I think that is something that I think society has to catch up. So I guess in closing, I'm just curious to know each of your thoughts on how do you see the Singapore identity evolving? Because we, we did talk about with the the declining culture and there is a there is an influx and there's a growth, there is an outburst of that culture from I think 92 all the way to 2020. How do you see just is the same word identity? Like, how do you picture it uh, evolving in, in in the future? I feel like Singapore identity is such a dirty word. Is it really? <laughs> you know, or okay. very often over like often overused yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, that's which is why it feels dirty as well. <laughs> because also, it's it's being used to push different narratives. Is that what it is? Or maybe sometimes it's just the same narrative, which okay. is in a way like a we have a lack of narrative or so that sometimes there's no real. There's, there's, there's no real form it takes. Mm. And like, sometimes we're also kind of scrambling for meaning every day. Like, what is the Singaporean identity or so? What yeah. is my own what, identity? What, yeah. what is the Singapore identity? Yeah. I mean, like, it is something that is like never-ending struggle, but we are a very cosmopolitan city. I think we embrace uh, Eastern and Western values uh, just as much. Uh, I think we should be able to reflect that you know, in, you know, reform of like, or review of laws that we have, uh, ideals that we have set in place. Uh, I think that constantly needs to evolve. I think uh, uh, the authorities uh, need to be a bit more open in a sense of letting, uh, you know, discussions happen more publicly. yeah, I think that's the only way that we can evolve uh, as a society and, f- you know, truly find this uh, Singaporean identity. Maybe being Singaporean means embracing the whole world and being aware of, like, what's happening beyond our bubble. Gotcha. That's nice. So does everybody agree with what Darren said? Agree. Yep. <laughs> Cop outs. <laughs> so I guess um to, to wrap up, where can people find... uh? your content where can people log on can people just email you guys to talk about memes uh yeah what's up where where can people find you guys yeah you can find us uh well on the usual channels like facebook uh instagram uh on spotify uh we are sg community radio singapore community radio uh we are on www.sgcommunityradio.com yeah yeah and email us whenever you want to talk about memes capitalism yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so what's the email is it daniel at sgcr.com sgcommunityradio.com 
But like we have an info, info at, at sgcommunityradio.com. Okay. But you can just put in our names also. Like if you want to yeah. contact us already, it's fine. Yeah. 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 Or DM us, whatever yeah. works. Yeah. We're not on TikTok yet, but we'll get there. Well, yeah, just, just, <laughs> just to kind of add on to Darren's like closing statement, for me, like there's a saying that I really, that I feel like this is something that I should live by, which is be angry at systems, but be kind to one another. Mm. Be what, sorry? Be angry at systems, but be kind to one another. Yep. That's a perfect note mm-hmm. to end on. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. <laughs> Sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.